Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. And this time, breaking from our regular teen, we are actually looking at one of the top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me, as always, is, oh, Captain, my Captain, the wonderful Andrew Quinn. How are you? I'm very good, Darren. Um, Bona Diaz. Not Bona DM. <laughs> That's what I was thinking would be. But that would mean good dead day, I guess. Um. Carpa DM. Carpa DM. <laughs> um, Bona DM. Uh, that, yeah, that would be a rather inappropriate thing, I think, for a teacher, not to spoil the movie, but to take all his students outside and to tell them Bona DM. Um, but yes, as listeners may have guessed, whether from the title or from the lines that we have just quoted from poetry, Latin, reading. and a movie. <laughs> Uh, we are talking about Peter Weir's 1989 Dead Poets Society. And joining us for this discussion, a fantastic guest. She talked with us last year. She talked through the Train Spotting movies. She talked through the Jaws movies. The fantastic Emma Kylie. How are you? I am good. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to talk about a standalone film for once. No, there's no thread of a follow up for this. It's just one and done. I don't know. There is another movie on the 250s starring Robin Williams as a teacher who manages to inspire a young, upstanding pair of two kids. Really? No, but it's not coming to me. Okay. All right. Goodwill. How do you like them apples? No, I'm yes, so and, lost. And, okay, Andrew's correct. Sorry. Andrew is correct. Oh, I've said Goodwill the name hunting. of it, but Emma hasn't heard. <laughs> um, do you want more? Um, more hints? hints. Okay. More hints. Okay, uh, you could say it has a great cast. It has a Stellan scar-studded cast. Okay, st- st- yeah, it's not. It's but he's not a teacher in Goodwill Hunting. No, he's no. not. No, okay, fine, fine. fine. <laughs> but it is Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> yes, it is. Okay, Goodwill you threw me with the teacher part. Fair. Oh, in the school of life. Um, okay, <laughs> I can only Fair. study one movie at a time. These are the rules of the podcast. Okay, we're getting off topic. Right, I got gotcha. you. Are indeed. Imagine I was like, nope, never heard of that film. What? <laughs> I heard this. I watched Jay and Saw the Bob Strike Back. I heard there was a sequel. Um, Robin Williams plays Stellan Skarsgård in that movie. That is what happens, as, yeah. as far as I can remember from my very clear recollection of that movie. <laughs> he plays the teacher. But yes, uh, Emma, what happened is basically we met at a couple of uh, press screens last year and we got talking. And I thought it'd be, we thought it'd be great to have you back on. And we basically went through the list that you gave us when we kind of settled on. Let's have you on to talk about some of the worst movies of all time and also train spotting. Yes. Um, and the original list you gave us included this movie, Dead Poets Society. Mm. So what was it about Dead Poets Society that when you saw like the list of movies that we had yet to cover on the podcast, you were like, that's the one. That's the one I want to talk about. You know, it's it's so funny. It's rather than like train spotting and Jaws, and, like and even the subsequent films to both of them are still some of my favourites and I revisit them a lot. The Poet Society, I'd say I hadn't watched since I was 17, so like eight years, and I rewatched it last night, and that was the first, yeah, first time in ages. But it was more so I am remembering how I felt when I first watched that film, mm. when I was like, I could have been as young as like 14, and just... Good time being, to watch it. Yeah. It's a brilliant time to watch it. it I, like I was thinking, I was really thinking about the effect it had on me then, and like especially as a 14-year-old who like, fancy themselves as a writer and their favorite book was Catcher in the Rye and all that pretentious nonsense but still when you're 14 that stuff is so attractive and you know you kind of 
you know, seeing Robin Williams teach like that when I was just going to like a normal school, I remember just being so blown away. And I'll get into it later, was, but like it was, still stands up or still holds up. Was everyone in your normal school a phony? A pho- yeah, they didn't. Oh. <laughs> and it's like I, such phonies. Phony. And I remember being reading like Catcher in the Rye, like oh, this is so true. Like my when I was like, fifteen, <laughs> and now the big thing about Owen Caulfield is that he hates films, and like I'm literally a film critic because I'm like, okay, did not follow Holden's look on life but anyways reading catcher in the rye going finally a book specifically for me for no just one, for me and no one else no and i'm sure jd sander wrote this for women in mind uh, definitely spare <laughs> <laughs> me so you say you watched this as as a teenager whether sometime between the ages of 14 and 17 do you remember the the first time you saw it how you came to it was it recommended to you did you find it on television did you seek it out what was it that drew you to it i d- it definitely what what it it's one of those films I feel like I was always aware of. I think like my parents had mentioned it and everything. And I also feel like when I, at that time when people were getting on social media and it was cool to post like stills from films that made you look really cultured, there was the male version, which was Dead Poet Society. And then the female version, which was Virgin Suicides. So my like early Instagram feed was like the Lisbon sisters and Robin Williams on that desk. And I remember thinking I was so cultured, but also what drew me to it was definitely the one and only Robin Williams. And like, we can get to that later. But like, I think Dead Poet Society was maybe a lot of people, or my generation's introduction to Robin Williams as like a serious actor. It was like, oh my God, here's a film with Mrs. Doubtfire. Here's a film with Patch Adams. Here's a film with the genie. So I definitely think without Robin Williams, I mightn't have been attracted to it. But yeah. It's a wild kind of a journey for Robin Williams because everybody is like, oh, he can act. It's like, that is what he had kind of always done like yeah. he had went to Juilliard to kind of be an actor and, and he had roomed with Christopher Reeve if yeah, I remember yeah. correctly really and I, I, I think like um, Mandy Patinkin and <laughs> had, had, had like studied with him as well I think in uh, Juilliard and, and I there's somebody else as well somebody kind of big but um, yeah, the, William the, Hurt. William Hurt. Yes, no. yeah, yeah. Oof. From from Broadcast News, right? Yes. And he's in some of the Marvel movies. I, I, that, yeah, yeah, I love yeah. that. That's the headline for like William Hurt's obituary. Is like, oh uh, yeah, he was in like Broadcast News and a whole bunch of Marvel movies. That's his career. <laughs> That's, he was replaced by Harrison Ford in the Marvel movies. That is his grand career accomplishment replaced by harrison ford uh, yeah i haven't seen yeah. is that black panther no no that's coming soon oh um, okay it's okay. one of the shows isn't it what what one is it no it's i believe thunderbolt it's the upcoming movie uh that's due out i think is it next year yeah it's the one where like william hurt was supposed to be the president of the united states and yeah. like when he died they were like we need to, like if only there were another actor of his generation who people <laughs> could imagine as president of the united states in some sort of action movie but no i can't think of anybody Get uh, off my plane. <laughs> um, but yeah, but yeah, like, and, and obviously, like, this is, you know, again, Emma mentioned this is one of his big breakthroughs. This is, I think, William's second Oscar nomination after Good Morning Vietnam as well. So he was very yeah. much in the process of kind of transition. And he had all that, st- like, very serious stuff, like, kind of, um, you know, like, like, like Awakenings, The Fisher King, kind of that was around this time that was around the yeah. same time like fisher king was 91 wasn't it but that's kind of like it, it's all it, a lot of that is is i mean of course Viet, good morning vietnam was 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 was, um, was a comedy and of course like popeye 
<laughs> like well, a long time well, before them. Uh, okay, I was worried that you were going to put Popeye in the middle of this serious transition. No, 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 time. no. Just, just the fact that like it wasn't kind of like one hour photo. Say like the, yes. that was his kind of. We like, didn't people go. People f- like, oh wow. He, yeah. He can, uh, or, or even in, I feel in like every answer. time he does it, people are surprised. Yeah. yeah. It's like, what, what is this? This is a new facet to him, and it's actually I'm just it's, flexing a muscle. That yeah. Because it, it's not like Jim Carrey. Where Jim Carrey was kind of like uh, goofy and then had a run of huge comedies and then started doing like serious movies. Yeah. Um, or like the Steve Carell thing that I think you have complained about. I think when I recommended like The Patient to you and I'm like, The Patient is a really good psychological drama uh, that's really intense. It's a really good character study. I think your response was, yeah, when's Steve Carell going to make a comedy again? Do you know what? I will, I will say it was the shining light in Anchorman 2, which is terrible. <laughs> Anchorman 2 was really yes, bad, but yes, Steve Carell was wonderful, I thought. Of <laughs> I thought he was like one of the few good things in this. Um, but yes, anyway, sorry. sorry. <laughs> we were off tangents upon tangents upon tangents. But yeah, this is obviously like it is a, a Robin Williams film in many ways. Obviously, he's the kind of headline figure when he passed tragically. And again, we'll talk maybe in the spoiler zone about like the resonance of this movie in some perhaps uncomfortable ways with the passing of Robin Williams as well and how this maybe became like a touchstone in terms of discussing like his legacy and his reputation. Because again, this is an interesting film in terms of the 250 where it was on the list when the list was originally kind of like launched in 1996, but it dropped off fairly quickly. Uh, It was gone very, very early. It crept back in, uh, in I believe like late 2017 uh, which would again suggest that it was maybe driven by the factor of kind of Williams passing. This was a couple of years after Williams had passed. It came in at 250. It is currently climbed to 209. So it's on an upward trajectory. It's on that prisoner's trajectory where yes. it is slowly and steadily ascending the ranks and nobody can stop it. Weird. But it's not moving quickly it's gonna enough. It's going to get that 250 bump. That is, it's well. going to get the 250 bump. <laughs> like, I love that we were like, prisoners, it's down the bottom. It's going to drop out. We should talk about that. And it's just like, First I'm at episode. 185. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, my wife loves that movie. Really? Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Well, she says like every time we see it kind of like advertised on like Netflix or something, she's like, oh, that's a great movie. Aww. Wait, what um, are we talking about now? Prisoners. prisoners. Oh, I love. Th- Do you not like Prisoners? I love Prisoners. I thought it was good. We, but, we had, yeah, it yeah. was our first episode. That's the, that's the weird thing about it. We just picked it randomly because we were like, this is a movie that's on the 250. Should it be on the 250? We don't know. It might be fun to figure out what this podcast is while we talk about it. And it has just kept climbing. So I think we talked when it was like 237 and it's now like 185. I prefer Sicario. Yes. I yeah. I think it's maybe the lesser of kind of that set of yeah. uh, Villeneuve movies. Um, I also we also watched like... Ensemble's. <laughs> yes, yes, we did, which Darren does not care for. <laughs> um, but that is a separate discussion that we are not getting into <laughs> no. right now. But An- Andrew, what about yourself? Did you see, De- have, did you, before we said last week we're talking about Dead Poets, or mm. two weeks ago we're talking about Dead Poets Society, um, had you seen it before? Had you, was yeah, it- yeah. And I feel like I was probably a similar age um, back in the 1970s or whenever <laughs> I was in my, my teens. Ten yeah. years before the movie was released, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um no, um, yeah, did, did, I, 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 I feel like it was kind of like a similar sort of experience, and that I was kind of drawn to it for its kind of accessible kind of profundity. 
you know yes for, I mean, and that is good for like kind of a, a somebody who's starting to become themselves yes yeah i mean yeah this is this thing i alluded to it at the end of last week's episode so to let emma know this up front i had never seen dead poet society wow before we decided we were going to talk this is kind of see emma's face Stop. i don't know whether it's horrified or confused or shocked. somewhere between the two shocked shocked i tell you shocked. i had not i had not seen this uh before we decided that we were going to cover it and the reason for that is very very simple I wasn't aware of this in my teenage years. I became aware of it when I was somewhere in the region of like 21, 22. Mm. And I don't know whether it was consciously or subconsciously. Like, I don't think I sat down and was like, poofed. This is a movie that if I were going to see it, I should have seen it like seven years ago. Yeah. But I think that when I was like 21, 22, I was like, this feels like it would have been the perfect movie for me to see in my teenage years. I worry if I go to it now, I'll maybe go to it with more cynical, jaded adult eyes. And also, as Andrew said, as Andrew has pointed out in this podcast before, I'm the kind of person who watches like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and is like, man, that movie's a bit harsh on Nurse Ratchet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I don't know if the movies, if Dead Poet Society would have quite aligned with my particular worldview in that sense. Yeah. Um, So we'll keep everybody in suspense about that. But yeah, no, I had I had not watched it. I had not sorted it out because I was kind of like, people like this. People enjoy this. It means a lot to people. And it's like, I don't want to harsh anybody's mellow. Um, yeah. You know, I don't want to be the, the old guy at the party uh, pretending to be hip and cool, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, 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 it's funny, though, like the, the, um, the, <laughs> the way that like, you're very well behaved, except you don't eat your vegetables. Yes, it's one act of rebellion. It's like kind of if it was a movie about like it's like, hey kids, <laughs> are you sick of the, uh, adults telling you to eat your vegetables? Darren would well, be like, finally, you're a hero I can relate to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I realize the best things in life aren't vegetables at all. <laughs> It's, it's having two things like movies and television <laughs> and junk, comic books. Junk food for yeah. the soul. Romance. <laughs> Love. <laughs> comic books again. More of them. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but yeah, okay. So um, <laughs> in terms of Dead Poet Society, it is, is worth kind of just talking about giving a bit of background. Written by Thomas Schulman. Uh, based on his school life, based on a, he went to an all boys ho- high school, an all boy high school, hoity toity high school, hoity toity high school. He went to an all boys high school, um, and he talked about how <laughs> boy school. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Sorry. <laughs> he he talked about how like he was inspired by one of the teachers there, just like mysteriously disappeared uh, one semester. And it caused, like, this raft of kind of gossip and speculation. What had happened that this teacher who had had such a big impact on the lives of his students had just, like, vanished off the face of the earth. And he talks about how, like, you know, rumors spread that he would had an affair with the headmaster's daughter and the headmaster's wife. But we were all too scared to ask what had happened. Had we done so, we would have learned that he simply got a better job. But because we never knew that, it left an opening in my imagination to write this whole story around an eccentric teacher and what happened to him. <laughs> and by the way, the, we, we, we're going to spoil it. Um, Robin Williams' character doesn't have a three-way <laughs> with, with, with the dean's wife and, and daughter. Um, just in case you're worried that's what Dead Poet Society you, is you actually about. Like, okay, so stop talking now, guys. I'm going to see this. Oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... 
Well, I mean, we maybe will get into the movie's gender politics at some point down the oh, line. We will. We will. We will. But I do think that, like, okay, so just in terms of production, obviously the script then works its way into Disney. At Disney, it ends up at Touchstone. At Touchstone, it ends up in the hands of Jeffrey Kratzenberg, who we talked about before, like one of the architects of Disney in the 80s and 90s. Um, he's like, okay, I want to make a movie of this. And he goes to Jeff Canoe, um, who is a director of arguably minimal influence or import in terms of American cinema, and famously, who Robin Williams does not like at all. So basically, Canoe decides to set up the movie. They deci- Disney decides that they want Robin Williams to appear in it. Robin Williams decides that he doesn't like Jeff Canoe. So when Had he the- worked with him previously? No, or? I don't I don't believe so. I went through their filmographies and I couldn't find any point just of overlap. Just like bad meetings. Yeah, I'm guessing, yeah. Or, or like some sort of like gossip or circle kind of like, again, had worked with people who had worked with him or whatever. Because you got to keep in mind, again, this was like Williams at the height of his career. In order to protest this, Williams, who had been strong-armed into agreeing to appear in the movie, simply did not show up to filming. What? Causing Disney, yep, causing Disney to keep overrunning and overrunning and overrunning and shut the movie down eventually. Apparently, according to Shulman, they burnt the sets from the film. Like, they fired Canoe, burnt the sets from the film, and were like, this movie is not getting made. So it passes around, it bounces around inside Disney for a little while. There are a number of suggestions for the actors who may or may not play the role that was supposed to be played by Williams. Because Disney are like, we don't, we don't want Robin Williams anymore <laughs> if he's just going to cause us to spool money. So at one point, Liam Neeson is attached to play the role of John Keaton. No way. Would have been arguably his huge break. Would have been again just a couple of years after he'd kind of made an impression, say, The Keep or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and his, his guest appearance in Miami Vice playing a member of the IRA <laughs> because it was the 1980s in American television. <laughs> yeah. um, I feel like he would have done a serviceable enough job, but that it wouldn't have been like the this classic. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it would not have been the movie it became. Yeah. And it would have the, been like part of that genre. Of yes. kind of um, dangerous minds, yes. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to like the like Mount Olympus of dangerous minds, <laughs> exactly. Um, and then obviously, <laughs> like when when Liam Neeson fell through for whatever reason, I think again another director came and parted on the project. Dustin Hoffman briefly oh. became attached as lead actor and director on the project. Director, yes. Has he ever directed before or since? Yeah, I, I think Hoffman's one of those guys who always wanted to direct. Mm. Um, I think he'd been meant to direct, was it straight time in the late 70s? But it kind of got away from him and the studio had to like basically pull him off and replace him with another director at the last minute. And then I think he, he did finally get around to it, I think around about 2011, 2012 with Quartet, which is one of those uh, silver dollar or silver pound kind of movies with Judy Dench in it. Not to be confused with Late Quartet, which is another silver dollar uh, music movie with a very good performance, Christopher Walken. But yeah, I think like Hoffman's one of those guys who had always wanted to direct, but hadn't yet got the chance. And you got to keep in mind like where he was in his career at this moment, because I think this is 89 is the year after Rain Man comes out. He wins the Oscar in 89 for his work on Rain Man. And like, I mean, he'd obviously he'd won for Kramer versus Kramer back in 1980. Mm. And I mean, he was in like Tootsie in in 1983, uh, which, you know, nobody talks about how big Tootsie is. That's a movie everybody collectively has forgotten existed. But that's a movie that was 
the second highest grossing of like 1982 behind E.T. It was the second most nominated movie at the Oscars that year behind Gandhi. Uh, it was a movie that, you know, we don't really talk about it much, but it basically single-handedly solved sexism in America. That's the way in which like Tootsie was greeted on release. There's no more sexism. Congratulations. We've done it. Everybody can go home. Take a half day. We solve sexism. We did it. Um, <laughs> but like, we don't have to talk about it anymore because Tootsie came out. But yeah, Tootsie... Like, Sexism is something that children now have to learn in history class. <laughs> yeah. It Thanks just, to it's Tootsie. No bearing on life at all <laughs> no, at the everything's moment. Fine everything's yeah. fine now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I mean, having solved sexism, Dustin Hoffman was like, I'd like to star in and direct this movie about an inspirational teacher. And Disney were like, sure, yeah, go on, why not? That did not happen. For reasons that we will talk about when we get into the spoiler zone, because they are kind of plot relevant. Okay. Uh, then what happens is, and I love that this happens almost by chance, right? Peter Weir, the Australian director, like one of, I would argue, the unsung heroes of like modern American cinema. Uh, We've covered him for uh, tr the Truman Show. We have indeed. Do we want to play a game, Andrew? <laughs> okay. All right. So here's the game. Peter Weir has had a total of four movies on the 250 from beginning to, to end. One of them is this movie. One of them is the movie that Andrew preemptively just mentioned there, which is The Truman Show. Yeah. Oh, do we want to... Like, okay, in a, in a question shoot-off between Emma and Andrew, do you want to see if we can guess what other two movies in Peter Weir's filmography made the 250? Yeah. And yeah, okay. Okay, we want to go. And do do you want to go hard, which is you guys guess without me naming his movies, or do you want me to name his movies and then? So how I, do you feel? I I have one guess. Go okay, go for okay. it. Picnic or Hanging Rock? <laughs> no, that's a miss. Oh, oh, I have no clue then. One of them is guessable; the other is not. Okay, Andrew. Okay, um, I did look at his filmography, and. <laughs> Like when, when, when you said picnic at hanging rock, I was like, oh yeah, that was one of them. I cannot <laughs> think of what the other ones were. Okay, I, all right. Um, Let's run through his filmography like very quickly. So, 1974, he makes the Cars That Ate Paris. 1975, he makes the Picnic at Hanging Rock. In 1977, he makes the Last Wave. In 1981, he makes Gallipoli. In 1982, he makes the Year of Living Dangerously. Then he waits a couple of years, makes Witness. Then he makes The Mosquito Coast. Then he makes Dead Poet Society. Then he makes Green Card. Then he makes Fearless. Then he makes The Truman Show. Then he makes Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World. And his last movie to date is The Way Back. So okay. of those movies, which two do you think have been on the 250 I think before? I think I have uh, think the my one. guess, but I think Emma should go okay. first. Because, because I, I kind of... Um, couldn't guess one <laughs> in, in the round without clues no i feel like we both have our obvious one sorry is the way back that random ass film with Sierra Ronan and they're climbing the desert yes it's jim sturgis ed harris and colin farrell my yeah. dad loves that movie it is like a movie made for my dad is it colin farrell <laughs> it's what 
it's fine. I'm like, that film is always, I only ever pay attention to that film because it was Sierra Sharona, but I'm always like thinking about, because then they made a film called The Way Way Back, and I'm like, which one is it? <laughs> it was the sequel. It was the, se- it was like, people loved The Way Back so much, they wanted to know even more about The Way Back. It's The oh. Way Way. I was like, did Peter Weir like direct some random, really good American coming of age film? Um, I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to guess one of them is Witness. Yes. That was, yeah. Okay, no idea for the other one. Okay. All right. Andrew, do you want to... Okay, so... um, um, It's not Picnic and Hanging Rock. No, it's not Picnic and Hanging Rock. Um, I I don't think it's Gallipoli, even though the 250, like, (laughs) (laughs) Mel Gibson. (laughs) Inexplicably. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I know that, like, the, the... the 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 two the IMDb kind of skews towards male voters, but I'm yeah. going to say it's not Master and Commander. It is not Master and Commander. Um, uh, I couldn't tell by your face whether it was Gallipoli. <laughs> no, it Gallipoli? I, I, yeah, you're right. I did I did not tell you it wasn't Gallipoli because it was Gallipoli. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, okay. I, 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 you're normally very good at poker. <laughs> Yeah, well, I can't lie. I can't tell you it wasn't Gallipoli. No, I was just looking at your face, like, uh, as I said, Gallipoli. The I, I know, time. but it was like yeah. the fact that you honed in immediately on the 250 likes war movies Mel Gibson. And was like, that makes Gallipoli an inexplicably likely candidate. And it's like, Andrew has been doing this show for far too long. Yeah. <laughs> like, But yes, it was. So like... So Weir has done these movies, and again, like, at the point he's done Dead Poets Society, he's just done Witness, he's just done The Mosquito Coast. You know, again, Witness is this massively successful movie, financially, critically, commercially. It's on the leaving cert. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's the kind of movie that they they show in, in, in schools. Oh my god! I'm horrified. What for that? Then uh, what do you call it? The King's Speech. I would love to write about Witness compared to Play on the Stars. <laughs> you, you, I mean, you watched the King's Speech for Leaving yeah. Cert for comparative. It was the King's Speech, the Plough in the Stars, and I'm so happy about on Colleen Kuhn, but we had to study that book in Leaving Cert, and I can tell you it's the most boring piece of literature out there. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so happy for on Colleen Kuhn, but everyone that did uh, Foster is is traumatized. But I think was other it, schools was, did Juno. Juno's another film on the Leaving Cert. Was Colleen Kuhn in? In English class or in Irish class? No, it 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 was an ing- it was a book written in English. It's called Foster, okay. but they decided oh, to okay. adapt it into an Irish language film. Yeah, I see. Mm-hmm. I did. I did Strictly Ballroom. That was on there as well. Yeah, I think I might have done something else as well because I did the Leaving Cert like once with you, Darren. As in, we started, but I, I, I don't think we had done the movie yet. Was my left foot? I was actually, I was talking to my sister who did it, would have done her leaving cert in like 2006. And I think it was either my left foot or in the name of the father. That was the film then, but I can't remember. I, I was the year before that, or I was two years before that, maybe. And that what we did uh, Cinema Paradiso. Oh, oh, that's why you don't like Cinema Paradiso. Yeah, it's like vegetables. <laughs> like cinema vegetables. It, it ruins the film, even though I love The Plow in the Stars, but it ruins the film for you. Like I, I would never watch The King's Speech now. Ever. I, 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 by the way, I did love that Emma's like, you know, I love, I love the Plow of the Stars. King's Speech, always hating it, probably always would have. Um, <laughs> just like, oh, we just watched it so many times. No, I did like Dude. King's Speech when I first watched it on my own volition, but I would just never revisit it now. My, my abiding memory of that is my sister did the Leaving Cert at the same time and like doing 
an impromptu crash study session on the King's speech with her, where it was like, I don't know what they're going to examine you on. <laughs> She's like, you review films. You, you should be able to talk me through this. And I'm like, it's uh, like okay. I can't write anything. I don't know what to do. It's like, just swear. <laughs> just write down as many bad words as you know um, and make them rhyme. <laughs> it's like, thanks, Darren. <laughs> Um, I, I I remember like a large part of that was like check out the framing here and how uninspired it is. Like, just look at the blocking; it's no good. Like why, why would you if in this scene? Why would you frame this scene this way? And I'm like, I feel like this isn't going to help you get that A that you want in English, but it's important for me to stay. But yeah, yeah. So like, witnesses on the leaving cert or has been on the leaving cert, um, and I think this has been as well. I know that this is on like this is taught in the states, yeah, um, as a film as well. Uh, for very obvious reasons and like we're oh yeah because like like it, it it would have to be because like aside from what aside from the topic it's about it's it um a lot of it is specifically about the american kind of corpus yes yes yeah, yeah. the american canon and yeah. the american like again american history socially and all this sort of stuff as well american childhood to a certain extent as well and i think like what's interesting is that like this doesn't emerge as a passion project for Weir. This is arguably one of Weir's most beloved and most famous films. And he mm. kind of stumbles upon it by accident. Where, like, he's meeting... At this moment in time... Jobbing director. That's it, he's a jobbing director. Weir has focused... Weir has latched on to... Like, he's just come off of Witness. He's just come off of the Mosquito Coast. He's like, I'm a director in the purest state of my art. I have got this idea that I need to realize on screen. It just, it's eating away at me inside and it won't, I won't be a complete person. I finally do I'm, Pinocchio right. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> he's like, a fun, <laughs> he's, he, he had been, eat, here's the quote from the development article on Wikipedia, just because I love the phrasing of this. <clears throat> Peter Weir had been eager to follow up his two US breakthrough hits with Harrison Ford, Witness and the Mosquito Coast, with a romantic comedy starring Jared Depardieu as a Frenchman yes. who marries an American for convenience called Green, Green Card. Jared Depardieu was in high demand following success in Jean de Flore, and Weir was advised that he would have to wait a year for his availability. I love the idea that Green Card was this project that Weir was like, I just have to do it. <laughs> I have to get it made. And it's like, it, Jared Depardieu won't be ready. He's like, I, I'll wait for him. I will wait for this project to be Right. And it's like, this is the movie that he ends up making in the meantime. When the stars align, yeah. Andy McDowell, Jared <laughs> yeah. yeah. you, you, I mean, you'd be an idiot to, to say no to that. Like, yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? Make it with like Kevin I'm Klein? Not, I'm not being... Meg Ryan? I'm not being ironic when I talk about like Andy McDowell. She, 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 she was in so many big movies at kind of at that time. Yeah, yeah. Groundhog Day, Four Weddings and a Funeral yeah. as well. Like again... Multiplicity. <laughs> All the classics. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I love that it's, like, he, he's he's waiting, he's killing time, he's got a year, and he takes a meeting with Katzenberg, and Katzenberg's like, look, we have this script that we love, that we are having difficulty with. You are a director who works really, really well, like, with performers. Uh, in particular, like, you know, you had, like, River Phoenix was in the Mosquito Coast as well, so, like, you work really well with kids, would you do us a solid? Would you read this script, see if it's something you're interested in? And we're on his way back to Sydney, on his flight back to Sydney, takes the script with him. And he's like, I don't like reading scripts on planes. This will just put me asleep. But look, I promised Jeffrey I would. He reads the script. And we'll talk in the spoiler zone about like he has a 
reaction to certain elements of it where he's like, look, this is a red line for me. But he reads the script. He's riveted. He lands in Sydney and he says, look, I've got one condition, which we can't talk about until we get into the Splorer Zone. But if you meet that condition, I will make this movie for you. And the rest, as they say, is history. He manages to convince Williams to come back on board. Again, worth noting, Weir has, like, at this stage, a reputation as a wrangler of difficult stars. Harrison Ford, not the friendliest man in Hollywood, if you're on the wrong side of him. Yeah. Sure, he's got his pot. <laughs> I don't I don't know. But I, like at this stage, he had a reputation for being an actor who was very demanding of the projects that he was making. Again, very famously, like The Mosquito Coast, which is a movie we are not talking about this week. But that's the one where it was like Harrison Ford drags... the grumpiest pothead that I can think of. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, basically, like, again, nightmare shoot. Ford, apparently very unworkable, but Weir kind of got that performance out of him, got his respect, worked with him and that sort of stuff. Hmm. And so, you know, you have Williams, who had been prickly with the previous director. Weir is like, come on, come on board, get on board with me. William's apparently going through a divorce at this point as well. Oh, yeah. um, so maybe not necessarily in the best place in terms of like his own head. Mm. Um, but again, Weir and Williams kind of work together. They get this very impressive young cast, which includes like Robert Sean Leonard uh, and Ethan Hawke, which we will talk about when we get into the maybe later on as well. And they make this movie and it is a massive, massive success. Um, it is just a huge success. The critical response to it is interesting, Darren says, raising an eyebrow. We will maybe talk about that when we get into the spoiler zone. We talk mm-hmm. about what the movie is about. But before we jump into the spoiler zone, uh, I just want to say, to fully understand a movie, one must be fluent with its meter, rhyme, <laughs> and cinematic language. You must ask two questions. How artfully has the objective of this film been rendered? And two, how important is that objective? Question one, which is one of the questions we ask in this podcast, rates the movie's perfection. Question two, rates its importance. Once these questions have been answered, determining a film's greatness becomes a relatively simple matter. So, Emma, I'm going to ask you to graph on that axis of importance and perfection. Does Dead Poet Society belong on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Okay, going by the book. <laughs> I think I'll go, uh, yeah, okay, pretend I'm uninspired. Ron Williams doesn't come into my classroom. Going by the book. Yeah, I do. I think it's important. I think it's, I don't want to say it's less important now, but obviously at that time, story centered around like white cis het men on the brink of greatness where like people thought like this is important not like any film about any other country this is what's important but yeah I do I, I do think it belongs in the list I would say I would say 60% of the reason is Robin Williams performance I do I don't think anyone could have done it like him and I do think he elevates the film I do think it's a well-written script and I think yeah, I think everyone can relate to some element of it. Again, I know it's like there's literally no women in it. And when they are, they're like stupid little dickheads or there's like no and there's no queer characters, obviously. Um, but I think it's a special story. And I think if you watch it at the right time, it can really, you know, land a very special place in your heart and stick with you for like the rest of your life. So, yeah, I do think it belongs in the 250. I it's funny that you mentioned no queer characters because yes. I I was watching it with my wife and she hadn't seen it either and she was like is this is 
is this a gay movie? Is 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 this like a, you know, is, is is there a gay love story in this? Yes, it does and, feel like yeah, it's yeah. building in that direction. There should be. Sean and well, anyways, we'll get to that. Or not Sean, we'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> there should be. We'll, we'll get to that later. <laughs> we we have notes. <laughs> oh yeah, I yeah. Does it, it it feels like like in in uh, parts of it are kind of like you know about kind of you know male um uh, intimacy and yeah. there is a lot of kind of like warmth um to it and bonding and kind of like quiet moments between two male leads one of which is outgoing one of which is vulnerable in a boarding school environment yeah. which is traditionally coded as a space for exploring those sorts of themes and ideas it's, it feels yeah. like it's made for a, 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 yeah at that audience like again yeah and it's not like a, a, a yeah not not to kind of spoil it too much but it, it, it the you could have possibly done that and not changed anything else yeah. about the movie. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I'm not, I'm not criticizing it because it doesn't have it, but yeah, yeah it, fe- it, it, it feels like it wouldn't be out of place. Yes. I mean, like it reminds me again, this is, I can't believe I'm going to mention this movie on an episode discussing <laughs> like one of the greatest movies ever made, but like Morbius, like Richard Lawson's <laughs> review of Morbius, uh, which will include the show notes where he makes a point that like <laughs> back in the eighties, like because Morbius is the story of obviously it's, it's Michael Morbius played by Jared Leto, who is a man who has absolutely no personal controversies that have been legally proven to this point. But um, we will include details in the show notes. But it is a story of like Michael Morbius, who is this kind of outcast character who's weird, eccentric, who's lonely, um, who is, is kind of, again, queer by any definition of the term, who has a rare blood disease and whose best friend is a man who, again, suffers from a similar ailment, who lives a very secluded, sequestered life inside a penthouse, who is very possessive, who he met in boarding school and who he shared a bed with during his time in hospital. And like Lawson's review of Morbius is fascinating because it's like, this is amazing because on the one level, like, this is what used to pass for queer representation. Like, back in, like, 1989, when they were making Dead Poets Society, like, that would have been a gold star for queer representation, even though nothing appears on screen in a mainstream blockbuster to have that portrayal of intimacy between men. But on the other hand, this is, like, 2022, and this is still what we're doing. Um, But it's kind of, it is interesting that you mentioned that, because it's like, the connection that you can draw between Dead Poet Society and Morbius. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe we brought up Morbius. Can I just say the absolute peak of my career and nothing will ever get better is that I mentioned shitting on Morbius on the Wikipedia page. I am forever intertwined with Morbius's legacy <laughs> and I'm never, <laughs> I've never been prouder of anything in my entire life. That, is it a heading? Where it's like is, <laughs> Emma Kylie on it's Morbius. subheading of like reception, <laughs> and then under it is like shitting on Morbius, <laughs> and then, and then a photo. Is Emma Kylie's <laughs> <review>. <laughs> Irish female critics who shot on Morbius. So it's like, like Emma Kylie writing for a Collider, and it's just a quote of me absolutely rinsing it. Oh, gosh. Um, you, you were kind of hoping for lesbius, as it were. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, hey, hey, hey. You're, hey. you're you're a witch, man. <laughs> Thanks. I like that. That one got a bit of a frosty reception. Oh, that's true. Though I don't know what it has to do with the movie. <laughs> 
I don't. I wish I was more cultured. Um, <laughs> all right. So, Andrew, what? About that's your... not fair. I had those in the chamber. Did you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, Andrew, what about yourself? Do you think Dead Poet Society is one of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Um, on that scale, I'd say its importance is greater than its perfection. Maybe not that it's especially imperfect no you you you'd have to, you'd have to give it a fairly high rating i mean if you're thinking of it in those terms <laughs> and it's actually not a bad way of doing it it's perhaps oh, I, have very a note in the, I have a note in the spoilers though we're gonna come we're gonna circle back <laughs> to dr j evans pritchard phd yeah. <laughs> um yeah i mean um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, there, I, I, I do believe there, there are like kind of uh, defenses of the like, you know, yeah, there, there, there are quite a few defenses of J. Evans Pritchard, right? Yeah, yeah. And re- reclaiming mostly it. written by yeah. English teachers. Like yeah, while yeah. researching this movie, one of my favorite subgenres of film criticism became English teachers movie... writing about how much they hate Dead Poets Society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There, there was one for the Atlantic that I couldn't read. Very good because uh, <laughs> because paywall. I'm not subscribed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. No, that 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 article will be in the show notes. I can assure you right now. Okay, good, good. Um, and and for myself, I mean, maybe we'll I'm... unpaywall it in the show notes. <laughs> I, I don't, we're not going to unpaywall it. We have a we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna pirate. We're gonna just copy and paste the whole article um, <laughs> on a Russian site. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> with lots of ads for like casino and Bitcoin mining. Yeah, um, <laughs> we will tell you one day, Emma, how we watch Vladimir Putin's Crimea. Um, which is a movie that actually exists. It's about the heroic intervention of Russia uh, into the crisis in Crimea and how those people have lives and rights. Yeah. Stop. You would have seen it if you were in Belarus. Yeah. That would have been probably it was very the, popular yeah. there. It's like, I believe it was their number one film for several weeks at the box office. Yeah. Um, there's also like a, there, a, one that I'm surprised hasn't made the list, but the one about the bridge the romantic comedy that was made about the bridge, the construction of the bridge. Oh, yeah. well, I don't think people want to think about the bridge anymore. Fair, fair point. All right, <laughs> yeah. all right, all right, all right. Pro-Russian right, right. people are like, oh. okay. It just makes me think about how they blew up that bridge. With that quirky romantic comedy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> about how the bridge was so wonderful. All right. For myself, I don't know. I do not know. I think, like, I worry. We'll talk about this when we get to the second question. I think I may have come to this movie too late. Um, I feel like I may have arrived, uh, unfortunately, behind the curve, not gotten in the ground floor. In terms of, like, as a cultural artifact, part of me is like, do you keep this and get rid of Goodwill Hunting and Stand By Me? Because it fits that neat overlap of, like, that, you know, Venn diagram of, you know, 1950s American childhood movies and movies about, you know, people who need inspiration in a environment, you know, in a kind of a scholastic environment. Yeah. Like, so can you get rid of, can you do a two for one trade and replace like Goodwill Hunting and Stand By Me with Dead Poets Society? I feel like the, I feel like the Stand By Me is a different category. That is like the, the, um, Goodwill Hunting and Dead Poets Society, like they're representative in the sense that one of them is the sciences and one of them is the humanities. Kind of and, and oh, and so we have to make a value. And then judgment. you have Patch Adams. Yeah. <laughs> 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 
And Jack, don't there, forget Jack. There is a fourth. Um, oh yeah, there's a theology movie too. Yeah. We're we're we're, we're the theology two. question the audience asking why God why while watching Jack. What are the four pillars of of a liberal <laughs> education? Is it? it I, I I believe the 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 it, was it. Was it law, medicine, um, uh, theology, and um, a fourth thing? <laughs> Wait, in his monologue. Oh, no, I'm no, sorry. No, no, I, no. no, no. I think Andrew's talking about like more broadly, <laughs> kind of like academically. Oh, There's the the university we went to, there was a campanile, yes. and above the campanile were standing like four kind of figures holding, representing, representing the four pillars. Uh, to be fair, at this stage, of one honor, of them probably represents best tradition. <laughs> Excellence. Excellence. <laughs> um, yeah. Discipline. Um, discipline, of course. But yeah, so I I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence about it. I think it's nice to have a movie in there that, like, re- you know, speaks to Robin Williams' legacy. I think this is probably more important to his legacy than something like Aladdin or something like even, say, Goodwill Hunting, arguably. Yeah. Uh, I think that, you know, you can make a valid argument for it on those grounds. It is a movie that, like, if the 250 is a list like that is composed by boys when they are 12 years old in 1999, this movie probably belongs on there just because of its cultural impact. Mm. Uh, arguably, like the question is like, if you say, oh, captain, my captain, are you quoting Whitman or are you quoting Dead Poet Society? Yeah. There is a legitimate question I to be asked like there in terms the of culture. Yeah, it probably yeah. is the latter. Um, and so there is a cultural kind of like, there is a cultural cachet there that I think is worth acknowledging. So I don't begrudge it its place on the 250, but part of me is also like, feels like there's a lot of movies in this zone already there. Right. And I don't know if this would be the survivor. If we were to like drop them all on an island or throw them all in a Oh, like actual survivor. Yeah. No, no. Back to the (laughs) island. (laughs) (laughs) And then at the end, there are two movies, but they don't eat coconut anymore. They just eat other movies. So what do you do? You let them out onto the island. Um, that's what you and I, Andrew, are. We're, we're, we're two movies. Um, but yes, deep cut. Um, okay. No idea. Really? That's, no. Skyfall. That's oh. this big speech about the rats in the barrel in Skyfall. I see. Okay. Yeah, well, that's why you move from island to rats. To, sorry, island to barrel. Yes, because the, the, the barrel is on the island. Okay. Um. There may be a reason why (laughs) I don't write movies, actually. (laughs) I don't write long monologues in movies. But, okay, Emma, I want you to tear out that introduction I just gave you. I want you to rip that out of the book I just gave you. And I want you to ask, is Dead Poets Society one of your own personal favorite 250 movies? Is it one of the best 250 movies you have ever seen? Yeah, I'd say so. It's not one that immediately comes to mind I think, but I think revisiting it, I had that really like warm, lovely feeling. And I was like, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be, I don't know if it'd be my top 50. It might be my top 100, but I think 250. Yeah, I think it's there. It's like a dependable one. It's one of a certain time. It's like 16 year old Emma's, but it, but you know, I'm still remembering her. So she gets to still have a say on it. So yeah, it's there for a younger version of me. I was going to ask, cause you, you said that you didn't really revisit it. Like, was this the first time you watched it since you saw it as a teenager? Yes. So it made for a really interesting watch of like, because I was, I went into it being like, is this going to hold up? And there are aspects that we can get to that I was like, oh, this isn't great. But overall, it, uh, you know, I was expecting worse. Like, there's no slurs. There's no, you know, and for a 1989 film. <laughs> I love that we've reached that step. Yeah. 
I'm like, no one's called a ho- like. It's not great for yeah. women, but like, no one is calling girls sluts. Like, you know what? For that, yeah, it gets to stay there. Yeah. Um, and like, do you think you'll go back to it again, or do you think like it's it's now you know the mem and the memory of like 17 year old Emma, and then I'm not going to presume what age you are now, but is it going to be a film that you see yourself coming back to, or is it now just a- an artifact? Well, I'm 25. So, what, eight years? So, would I watch it again at 33? Yeah. And you know what? It probably is a film I would show to my kids. You know, and I think it definitely Mm. has a special place in my heart. It was, I think, you know, I was interested to watch it because I'm trying to, you know, it's it's tough because when you're younger, you don't have a lot of choice with these kind of coming of age films. And you really have to be forced to identify with a white heterosexual man. Like there weren't films I did post society for girls. And I'm not going to feel bad about, like I try, like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to become more skeptical and be like, oh God, these white men, these stories, like I should be watching stories by women for women. But at the same time, I didn't have a lot of choice. It was that or like Perks being a wallflower. Again, a white man at the center. Like, you know, there was no ladybird at that time. Sorry, I'm, t- I'm talking as if I grew up in the 70s. But you know what I mean? Like, it went... <laughs> sorry, sorry. Oh, back then when we were smoking and Emma and Andrew together in the 70s. Like, <laughs> 70s. sitting down watching movies that had yet to come out. Ladybird is a movie where teens have phones. Yeah. <laughs> I was like watching it. It's like, this is a... This, this is like Like a some period. George Lucas stuff. Um, kind of coming of age thing, and there was a lot. Of, there, there have been like a few that there, there was like, um, was it mid nineties and like stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, um, eighth grade and stuff like yeah, that. More yeah, recent yeah. examples. Yeah, oh, eighth grade, which is good. Yeah. yeah, eighth grade is such a gorgeous film. But like, they all came out by the time I was in college. So I'm just saying in school when I wanted these yeah. films to like really inspire me and I, you know, I wanted to be a writer and I thought, and like I went on to study English in college. So I did like literature and poetry and stuff. So, but you know, it was slim pickings. So I'm not going to be mad at myself for loving this film, even though it, sh- it has off representation for women because there was nothing else. And for that, you know, I'm going to let myself enjoy it. I'm going to let myself consider it one of my top 250 films, probably for the rest of my life. And look, this is, again, maybe a question to defer to the spoiler zone. And I know you studied, obviously, English in college. But how would you say, like, the depiction of the study of English in this movie reflects to your experiences as a student of English? Do you feel like Dead Poet Society captures the experience of studying? Okay. No, definitely not. I did. I had an English teacher in school I liked. I went to a very good school. Like, I went to a public school, a Loretto in Kilkenny, um, grand old school. Um, I did go to boarding school for a year, which definitely was that, which like was the worst year of my life. And Dead Poets Society did not represent how awful boarding school can be. It's kind of nice in this film that like bullying isn't really much of a thing, even though it's not accurate at all. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of like they they kind of hate it, but it's it it is really not so bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like. I was like, this this would be fine, you know, compared to like my experience or like even even like going to I went to Congo's for French college and I was like, God, Dead Poet Society actually seemed pretty nice, <laughs> especially if you had if you had Robin Williams as a teacher. But no, like I think I, I see that's the thing about Dead Poet Society. It makes teenagers really idealistic about the study of literature. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I did have some. I go to English teacher in Loretto and then I had a few good prof- like lecturers in UCD that definitely went above and beyond and be like, this is why you should like literature and this is why you should like film. And, you know, really, because there is nothing like a teacher that inspires you. I know it's a really corny and cliche, but if you get like 
at Jack Black and School of Rock or you get a Robin Williams at Post Society it really is magical and like there is something to be said about a good teacher because it's such a skill and I think that's what's a nice aspect of as well of as well as I really taps into that a, a really good teacher can make all the difference in someone's life yes Darren's making a note of that we will come back to that in the spoiler zone okay perhaps. okay um, I've never been more excited to get into the spoiler zone out of any of the episodes I'm like when can we get there <laughs> <laughs> are we there yet? Are we there yet? Yeah. Because um, we are actually, we're actually preserving, which is nice. I like that we're like, there is stuff of this that we're if taking you our don't time. already know, you should, yeah, we, you should, you should, you know, not know yeah. about it beforehand. But Andrew, what about yourself? Would this be on your own yeah, personal 250 I'd, favorite I'd, movies? I'd agree kind of um, broadly with, with, um, with Emma. I'd, I'd want her children, to see, I'd, I'd take her children to see this. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd possibly be my own. <laughs> Um, it, um, no, uh, Emma's as a focus group and it's like, you're not going to just get kicked um, out there like some random man that didn't even be you just promised to tempos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, was there any demands? Did he leave a note? Um, it's like he said, I'll, I'll drop them back in two hours and nine minutes. <laughs> yeah, I want to give them a love for literature. Um, no, and, uh, um, the, the note and, just says Carpe Diem. Well, it's a good movie because there's one for the boys. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> finally, 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 one from the point. <laughs> finally. finally, a movie about coming of age for young straight white guys. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, like as uh, uh, as an adult, it kind of it, it it does kind of hit different. And I think even even kind of watching as a teenager, I think I was aware of kind of like uh, people in their like kind of twenties and thirties, kind of like maybe looking down at because I was aware of friends like. Uh, yes yeah. can we talk um, about that that because I, I meant to say that that was my introduction to this film i remember it was fr- the friends joke okay do you want to talk about it now or do you want to talk no, about no, it now or do no, you want no. to talk about spoiler zone okay, we'll, we'll, yeah spoiler right yeah Wait, sorry but yeah i suppose i i i, I would because it was it, it's kind of my sort of movie it's the kind of thing i like with like uh like elbow patches and <laughs> love, um, pipes there are pipes. lots of yeah, moments yeah, with pipes yeah, exactly um new england um in 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 the autumn autumn right? it seems yeah, 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 like yeah. autumn it and into winter to be autumn yeah it's winter yeah. <laughs> um, yeah presumably like it's it's all over one term it's a very intense term yeah very. yeah it's it's it, it's only ramped up like halfway you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like what is the rest of the year going to be like for this school exactly so much bloody pressure like, <laughs> and, and it hasn't even gotten to the important part of the year yeah um like the whatchamacallit um so yeah, no, I I'd 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 possibly put it in 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 my two fifty. I think I think um kind of I'm um it's not like a thing where I'm going out telling my peers like now, oh you have to see this. Down the, po- down the pub yeah, with yeah. the other <laughs> Exactly. What like, age are we saying? We're I'm not telling Darren like, oh no no, you have to watch this movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would, I would hope that you yeah. know that I already have one. <laughs> yeah, but say, 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 yes. if you're like, oh, I've you haven't seen it. it, you have to see it. I'm not going to be saying that. Yeah. Again, like it's a thing that like Luke Maybe, talked about. Like we talked about nephew. Star Wars, where it's like, would, would you recommend like Star Wars? And he's like, I feel like if you are an adult and have not watched Star Wars, you made a conscious choice at some point, <laughs> and it is not my place to tell you to break that conscious choice. I totally agree. 
Yeah. Plus it become it, it it yeah, it 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 does kind of become your identity and it's important because there are so many people who are like, "What? You've never <laughs> seen Star Wars?" and the best kind of remedy for those people is to continue not to yeah, watch Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, The exactly. best reason not yeah. to watch a movie is spite. <laughs> yeah. I can speak from experience. I've only ever watched the first one through. And I'm, I have no... <laughs> same with Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings gets people angrier than Star Wars. I've noticed. There are more good Lord of the Rings movies, maybe. I don't... I, though, though, no, no, no. Darren needs to walk that back immediately. Darren just realized what he said. I was like, um, <laughs> the podcast would like to distance itself from Darren's comments. Darren has no opinions about Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. Yeah. But thinks they're both marvelous. Um, Yes, but yes, I can I can see hypothetically why that would be the case, Emma, is what I meant to say. <laughs> yes, fair. <laughs> but yeah, so so but you did you so on your two fifty, did you Yeah, maybe, yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Right. Yeah. And for myself, again, I, I worry no, I think I, I missed the window on this one, unfortunately. I do also worry, and we'll get into the spoiler zone, that this is as Andrew has pointed out, never going to make the Darren list because it doesn't stole the Darren virtues of, you know, like excellence and discipline and, uh, and, uh, (laughs) what were the other two? Um, excrement. No, uh, (laughs) excellence, discipline, tradition, and honor. honor. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think I have that in the right order. (laughs) Uh, Well, no tradition is like the movie. Like it's not a spoiler to say the movie kind of opens with the word tradition, like across the screen, almost as a statement of purpose for what this movie is going to be about. Which I like. I like when a movie declares with a single word, like what one of the core themes in its opening act. Yeah, I think I arrived to it too too late. I don't begrudge anybody. I think it's a very good movie uh, to put that out there and to make that position clear before we have the conversation we're going to have about it. Mm. I think that um, Weir's direction is phenomenal and massively underrated. I think it is a beautiful, beautiful film to look at. Um, I think it's very creative. I think its framing and composition are striking. I think there are several shots in this movie that even though I didn't see it until earlier this week are like, I'm going to remember what this movie looks like. Yeah. You know, I I may not, you know, the movie's themes and ideas may not resonate with me because I am a, what's it, how is Andrew describing me? A soulless robot that generates movie opinions. What? Um, (laughs) I said that? I think you you may have been being flippant. Um, (laughs) I hope you were being flippant. Um, But yeah, I I think that like it is a beautifully made film, um, which I guess leads neatly into the third question, which is, Emma, if listeners have not seen Dead Poet Society, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? It is available on Disney Plus because it is a movie that was made by Disney. So, Emma, would you recommend that they pause the movie and watch it? So, pause the podcast and watch the movie. Yeah. Can I say, I find it so interesting that you were really drawn to, like, how the film looks. Because in all the conversations I've had about this film, I've never, ever heard anyone point out the direction. And it's so true. It is a lovely film to look at. I know, mean, that's interesting. I just, I never, ever thought of the direction. And tr- The Truman Show, I think, is a lovely film to look at as well. So, absolutely. Mm. But do you, yeah, I do. Now, at the same time, it's not a film because, I forgot to say, with the Friends joke, I remember watching Dead Poets Society and knowing the ending. I know not in the exact context because that friend's joke is whatever, yeah. but I did know. And it doesn't ruin it. It's not one of those, you know, and I feel like if you watch a certain age. M. Night Shyamalan, what a twist. It was. Yes. <laughs> exactly. that, that's, that is the shock horror. It's like 10 years before Sixth Sense. The movie ends with M. Night Shyamalan bursting through the window of the school and going, what a twist. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sorry, Emma. 
exactly though like you can so i'd say is definitely watch it but i'm not saying is that like don't you know if you ruin the ending it's good like you know it's gonna ruin experience because it absolutely doesn't but i would absolutely recommend it to anyone i would say if i was you know it's funny i recommend it differently to any age if i was recommended to a 15 year old i'd be like oh my god you'll love it it's such a special film if i was recommending it to anyone my age or older i'd be like yeah, it's a bunch of white men, take with a pinch of salt, but it is really brilliant. And I always think that the one thing you can always defend about it is Robin Williams' um, performance. So, yeah, I definitely recommend it to anyone. All right. And Andrew, what about yourself? Yeah, no, um, Robin Williams is um, terrific. It is a great um, performance. It's a movie, I guess... um, I suspect it wasn't the first movie of this kind of kind, but it's certainly a movie that's that's had a lot Codified of kind of I- yeah. imitators, I guess. Yeah. yeah, it feels like a very sort of like like I I had a substitute teacher who had a guitar. <laughs> that, I think so, and like he he. This is he after Andrew abandoned me to the, seemed, the school that we went to together, and Andrew no, went to a good school. No, th- this was <gasps> when traitor. I was. Um, this was when I was a, a a. This is one before I had ever met you. This in primary school. Primary school. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this teacher. I think his name was like. Was it Mr. Wolf or something? <laughs> it, was so, it was something really cool, like Mr. Fox or Mr. Wolf. Mr. Um, Boss. <laughs> Mr. Um, uh, but yeah, I feel like he was unaware of the curriculum. He was great. <laughs> um, like that's what you want from a teacher. It's like like every now and then you'll like like um, it'll sometimes happen that the principal will come in and he'll have no idea what you're supposed to be learning. So here's the earth and here's the orbit of the earth. There's the moon goes around, but you're also orbiting the sun. And, and then he'll, he'll draw it out in any question. Does this relate to anything you're doing? <laughs> but Today yeah. we're going to learn about gravity. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, hey, did you know there's different kinds of pencils? Today we're going to learn about the, 2H. Yeah, that was how the this um, uh, teacher got me. He was like, "You see these two bees? Like that's re- it's really dark. It's like it's dark hair, like Andrew or Ruth over there." And I was like, "Ruth, we have the same hair. I'm going to marry you someday." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The the record should show that Andrew's wife Petrina does not have the same color. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I don't. <laughs> As we got more mature, we she started doesn't. changing the criteria of the <laughs> ideal partner. Um, I mean, yeah, there there were so, like again t- the the popular and again we'll t- we'll talk about this when we get talk about the critical response. The quote, the teacher who changed my life unquote subgenre, which included yeah. like popular weepers like Goodbye Mr. Chips, Good Morning Miss Dove. As, like, I think Ben Brantley in the New York Times quipped, the, the alternative title for Dead Poet Society was Good Golly, Mr. Keaton, um, <laughs> as a possible title. But yeah, season, season five of The Wire <laughs> as well. Yeah, no, season four. Season four. Yes. I do beg your pardon. Yes, yes season that has, four. like, Michael B. Jordan in and, it, doesn't it? Yeah, no, sorry, not Michael B. Jordan. Michael B. Jordan was season one. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, yes, he was. Yes, good point. And perhaps the other seasons. <laughs> Which I, I have definitely watched. Yeah. For, for oh, anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
sorry. But yes, you're right. It's season four of The Wire because season five is the uh, the Baltimore Sun, isn't it? Number five is the newspaper. Yeah, I think they you work might their. Be I love right. that they work their way thematically through institutions. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I was thinking for a moment that there were six seasons, but I think it was just five. There were just five. Yeah. Yeah. Um. All right then. And for myself, uh, yeah, wholeheartedly recommend this. Actually, like again. I went in somewhat guarded, maybe a little bit cynical. Um, you know, again, I don't think this is a perfect movie. I don't think this is Weir's best movie. But I did have a really good time with it. I found myself really moved by it and kind of stirred by it. I think the performances are incredibly charming. We have shouted out Williams, and very deservedly so. There is a, a reference. There is a, an actor who's appeared in, you know, arguably the greatest American movie of all time. That is Kurtwood Smith from Robocop. <laughs> uh, obligatory Robocop, Robocop reference. reference. I was like, which actor was in Morbius? What? <laughs> <laughs> um, and obviously, like we mentioned, like the kids are surprisingly At decent. At some point in the movie, he doesn't say, can you fly? <laughs> no, 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 he, no, his son asked that of a desk. He asked that of a desk. Like yeah, that, yeah. He obviously was listening to his father at home. Yeah. So I was like, keeps, keeps throwing things at the window. Keeps throwing people at the window and saying, can you fly, Bobby? Um, out of cars. Um, but, um, but yes. So, and also but the, the, the kids are actually really good as well. Again, Ethan Hawke. Mm. This is like arguably one of his breakthrough performances. You have, is it Sean Leonard Scott? Um, as well, sorry, no, Sean, Robert, Robert Sean, Robert Sean Leonard. Leonard. Yeah. Robert Sean Leonard, um, who like, and again, we'll talk about in the spoiler zone. I kind of love that he's just like, you know what? I like theater. I like theater a lot. I'm just going <laughs> to do theater for the rest of my life. And it's like, maybe if a TV show comes along that I only have to shoot two days a week and they don't expect me to go to the Emmys every year with them, maybe I'll do that as well. <laughs> but I'll use that to pay for me to continue to do theater forever. And like, uh, you look up his, like, whenever you're reading interviews with him, it's always like, and he's appearing in a local performance of King Lear. <laughs> and you'll see, you'll be able to see him at the public playhouse performing like Midsummer Night's Dream. And it's like, good for you. I really <laughs> love that you were like, no, I found the level that I'm most comfortable at. Um, and I just do all the other stuff to pay the bills. Robert John, Robert John Leonard in in uh, the Pasadena Playhouse production of um, uh, sorry um, Disney's The Dead Poets Society. Yeah, part of me like you do know that they they readapted this for stage. Of course, Thomas Schulman adapted this for stage, starring Jason Sudeikis in the Robin Williams role. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> Again, like you can't see Emma's reaction, but I feel like that captured it. I feel like that 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 noise kind of captured it. Jason Sudeikis is only someone I've heard recently isn't a nice person, so he's always yes. that actor. I'm like, oh, oh wait, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, there's certain actors yeah. that like it, he's not like he hasn't been like Harvey Weinstein yet, where I'm like, oh, gross immediately. But his public persona is arguably somewhat at odds with accounts of his personal life that have come out from various sources and all this. Mm -hmm. Again, we will include in the show notes as well. And you have this kind of dissonance between this this image that he plays on television, this image that arguably informs things like him, you know, collecting his Emmy remotely uh, while possibly kind of drunk and charming in a tracksuit and everybody being like, oh, Jason Sudeikis. And then 
what subsequently comes out um, about the nature of what was happening at that moment in time. Darren is being vague, very deliberately, um, but you can read it in the uh, in the Will show Forte notes. Will Forte is okay, right? As far as I'm aware, yes. Yeah, there's nothing... No. Uh, excellent. Great. <laughs> no, never... no, I shouldn't oh, compare yeah. him to... No, 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 no. We should, we should be absolutely clear. There are no allegations of any sort of Me Too, um, any physical abuse, any violence. Or any sexual any, abuse or assault. Any sexual abuse or anything yeah. else. Yeah. I, I lo- yeah. It's there's... just uh, like uh, uh, suggestions of him being a jerk, maybe. Or, yes, and right. Being I suppose very... you don't want to talk about it. Yes. Well, I mean, again, it's it's the, but, the end but of do the. Bring it up. But anyway, anyway, so the point that I was going to make before we ended up down this particular rabbit hole was that it was restaged for it was restaged for the stage. So thank you, Andrew, for bringing us on like, that segment. Yeah. Uh, I, um and like uh, Andrew, like um, he, he's he's been in some good uh, some podcasts. Uh, he's um, like has some fans. Um, he's done some stuff. Yeah, we won't go into it. <laughs> no doubt, killed my house. <laughs> <laughs> somehow, somehow, not going into it makes it even worse than going into it. Um, but like it, it is, it is worth. Uh, and again, like I had a similar experience when I was reading up on like Robert Sean Leonard. Where like because obviously all these interviews happened around about say the time House ended or whatever yeah yeah and it's just like you're reading these kind of retrospectives of, of his career and it's like so after I did uh, Dead Poet Society I just went on stage and I went to London and I performed with Kevin Spacey and it was just the best experience of my life and then after that uh, I remember going to New York and Ethan Hawke was filming a movie with Brian Singer and they needed a loan to get the movie finished. So I loaned Brian Singer some money. It was just a nice thing for me to do. And I feel like I kind of helped him get a start in his career and kind of, you know, maybe I have some responsibility for the man that he became. Uh, and it's kind of like you read this. forward, Brian. Sweetie. That's what, like, no. Leonard is like, that's how I got the role in House, actually, to be fair. That's why Singer gave me the role in House, which is the perfect role that I wanted, where I show up for two days a week and then don't have to go to the Emmys. Um, that's... That was I love that that was like his contractual agreement. It's like when we win Emmys, I don't want to have to be there. <laughs> I will cheer you on and send a congratulatory text to the group thread, but I am not going to the Emmys. It's like okay, I'm sure we will find somebody to go to the Those Emmys. Those do seem really boring, don't they? Well, yeah, because you can't. I mean, they, have to go. Yeah, well, yeah. okay, well, the Golden Globes. No have their offense own to like um, people like re- religious believers, but it, it's it's kind of like it's it's like mass kind of in the sense of like it being very long and there being parts of it that you, you maybe like don't really connect with um yeah i cannot imagine watching the oscars <laughs> Already and speaking, speaking of something that Sorry. is far too long and full of moments that you cannot connect with we're going to segue neatly into the spoiler zone Zone. So Emma, what is Dead Poet Society about for you? It's about um, the about only cisgendered straight white men can feel pressure. Like you know, they're the only ones who have the weight of the world on their back, and so particularly in 1959, like everything else was hunky dory. The real problem in 1959 was the pressure that was being put on white guys. Oh my, oh yeah, women. They were fine. Don't worry about them. People of color. Oh my God. They were cruising through the, the, yeah, they were absolutely fine. It was these 
and also like not just white men but like very wealthy and very like you know that bit when oh who is it it's the it's neil and he's like oh my family aren't rich like whatever and i'm like your family's doing fine neil like they're doing great they're doing great (laughs) Don't worry, just because they're not char- like, oh, my family only have 20 million instead of charities like 50 million. My dad like- only has a huge study and yeah. a gun locker. Neil's father is, I had to make a lot of sacrifices. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I had to buy a lesser type of gun. <laughs> <laughs> a low quality like, lock. I couldn't yeah. even buy a combination lock. <laughs> I had to get cheap slippers. I didn't get yeah. the sheepskin ones. <laughs> I'll have you know, Neil. I couldn't afford it. I couldn't dis- afford a separate room. Now I have to sleep in the same room as your as your mother. <laughs> we all make sacrifices. <laughs> yeah, not even a separate bed. <laughs> and this is 1959. Yeah. The Flintstones won't be shown the same bed until next year. Um, <laughs> oh, that is so. No, it's about finding. Uh, if I'm going to be sincere, it's about like finding hope and awe and inspiration in a world that tries to suck you dry of it. And I do get that and I think I think the bones of Dead Poets Society can be applied to anything I think it's a really good like I think yes. it's a really nice film to watch if you're doing let's say the Irish Leaving Cert because there's no whatever I, I agree with the Leaving Cert it's fair for everyone it, you know and I, I do think it, it, it is good in that way but there's no joy in it really you study English to get a good grade um, I didn't find that much joy in school or education or being taught I have to say I like nothing and uh, you know a bit of to have a teacher kind of teach something because they were excited about it or they were interested about it or just like, you know, poetry is a lovely thing to have, but it, it wasn't just like, oh, yeah. if, you get, if you write this down, you'll get like marks. And I, so I do think the bones of it can be applied to any era, to any gender, to any, you know, person. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, you know, it's an, I, I like kind of one of the pivotal moments is that kind of, you know, speech he gives and he's like, medicine and law these are whatever noble pursuits i actually i used to know that monologue off by heart when i was listening to it it all kind of like came back and i remember being really touched by that that like you know because yeah. i wanted to study english and you know maybe there's a bit of pressure from like whatever that I, you know i should have you know because like there was such a stigma against arts but i always wanted to do an arts degree yeah. and i did and i'm really glad i did um it's important to you know get a job and everything and especially actually what i think is really interesting was watching this as someone who was like 11 during the crash because I think after the recession particularly in Ireland it was like oh you, you like you want to be a writer good luck like you know there's no jobs no jobs for engineers let alone writers so I think it was really interesting to kind of actually feel a bit more resonant resonant because even of a different era and I really think the crash had a lot to do with that that like you know there was this kind of real torn i'm feeling really torn between you know do i want to do something i want or something that's going to get me a job and i think that can be applicable for everyone well that's arguably like an argument in third level education around the world particularly in the uk and ireland and america which is this idea of utility the idea of like what is the function of education and what is the function of say even third level education i know this is technically a high school but it's like is the role of education to make or to provide children with a fully rounded grounding that makes them or gives them the tools with which they can become fully formed individuals? Or is it like something that serves a more economic purpose, which makes them productive members of the economy? Is the goal coming out of school to produce like a human being who is functional or is well, yeah. it? Yeah. I, th- I, th- I think it's kind of, but it is a broader point about life because there's, there's kind of like education for education's sake. Or there's kind of um, education 
um, as a means to an end. Yeah. And then there is life as a means to an end where you're always doing something because of some other thing. You know, like I'm working hard to kind of provide for my retirement you know to pay for like, the house to pay yeah. for the mortgage to you know yeah 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 or, or like i'm 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 spending time away from my children so i can you know uh pay for my children's education uh, and they or education the same, yeah. yeah yeah but the 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 i think the thesis of the movie is kind of that life is really juicy like it's uh, it's a it's it's a tasty thing like they talk about like sucking the, the marrow out yeah. yeah and 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 that it's um, you have a chance to be kind of whoever you want to be and to, to, to what is it, to, 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 to contribute a verse. Yeah. What is it, the, 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 and the, the, the idea that he goes into of uh, the, the mass of men leading lives of quiet desperation. Yeah. Kind of, like, which is a yeah. quote that I, I adore. Yeah. Mm. And it, it's, it's, it, it, it's basically saying like, you know, you feel that like life is a drag but like it doesn't have to be you know i mean like that that's the the point that comes up repeatedly like and you have like people aren't just making it to the kids they're making it to keating as well where you have like the head marsh uh, the headmaster like nolan explaining to him like your job is to get them into college that's your responsibility here yeah you are a it's kid. a factory line that's it exactly yeah. like 75 percent of our graduates go on to an ivy league school that's mm. what our reputation is that's what our business is and also the fact that you you know what you're doing and i guess maybe this is a segue into another topic i don't know if we want to move into it now or put a pin in it for later but it's like what you're doing is kind of dangerous with these kids like these kids are kids They are not necessarily fully formed individuals yet. What you are doing with them is bold, daring, provocative. It's worthy. It will give them, if it works out, it will give them something that has, you know, a value that is unquantifiable. It's not measurable. That exists beyond any economic measure whatsoever. It'll give them something that they will carry with them for the rest of their lives and inspire them. But it's also entirely possible that it will go spectacularly wrong. And these are very delicate kids at a very delicate age. And how you act towards them will have consequences. And I think that's the thesis of the the um, kind of uh, academic establishment in the movie, right? Yeah, but I also part of me is also like we talk- <laughs> <laughs> go for it, Darren. Yeah, Darren's like, give me a second Unashamedly. here. I need. I need. Darren's like, I'm Team Nolan. To be clear, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, okay. We talked about, like, we talked about uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is a movie that <laughs> I am less fond of than most people. And, like, the joke is Darren's Team Nurse Ratchet. Darren is not Team Nurse Ratchet. Team Nurse Ratchet is a monster who does terrible and horrible things. She is an awful human being. But I'm also, like, is it Randall McMurray, the character played by Jack Nicholson, is also a terrible not human great. being yeah. who does awful things. Like, he takes those, like, he takes those people who have been in institution out on a boat into the middle of the ocean. And it's like, what happens if, you know, Danny DeVito falls overboard? What happens if Christopher <laughs> Lloyd has a panic attack? Like, what happens in those circumstances? Those are not in an but environment... It, it, it's like the best day they have, like, in the whole... Uh, <laughs> in the, in the, the, um, I, I do think that we're kind of placed with this quite well. Yes. Because when they go to the cave to read their poetry 
to do something like this fairly kind of um not really very transgressive at all yes um it's very witchy yes. it's kind of satanic yes well it's he films that he referenced that he was filming it like uh the seventh seal like the final shot of the seventh seal the children kind of wandering off like over the horizon like they're moving into something that is like a spiritual realm that's kind of a culty but and the music kind of feels like a like a horror movie yes like a kind of a 70s or 80s kind of like synth heavy yeah of. and they're shot again in the wilderness they're shot between trees they're wearing hoods it goes all kind mm. of tubular bells sort yeah. of a little and, bit but like my and again it, it, it's Morris Shar is, is responsible for the soundtrack but I think like why I like Dead Poet Society a bit more than say One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is that I think the movie is to a certain extent more clear eyed about like the dangers of doing that with kids like the dangers of what Keatings is doing like Keatings is obviously like martyred at the end of this movie he's the victim nothing I am not suggesting that what happens to Keatings is fair or right or whatever it's right? Keating isn't it Keating sorry yes I'm I'm not arguing that like he was a terrible human being and a monster and the villain of the movie but I do think that, like, there is something in the idea that, like, Neil, played by Robert Sean Leonard, could do what his father said and, like, study, which he's obviously got an aptitude for. He could go, he could study whatever he's going to study afterwards, and then he could find the interest in college after he's got his degree. What? Are you serious, <laughs> Is this really... Sorry. Okay, all right, fine. I, I don't know. Like, part of me is, like... Do what you, your parents want you to do. Until you reach the point where you have, like, enough maturity no. and perspective. God, no. Do you realize the teenage... That he ends up... That he commits suicide! I think Darren not has a because, point. Not because of anything that anybody else does. I think that, like, if he hadn't have been... if that There is a movie where okay. he commits suicide because he's not allowed to to and and that that that's kind of like 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 if 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 it's it he so can i say a teenager is uh not quite a child not quite an adult and by the way i believe that um children whatever they're interested in should be encouraged whether whether it's the kind of um the uh, uh, grown-ups idea of like what they ought to be doing if they have if, if i think if a parent has an idea of or if it or if a teacher has an idea of what a kind of a fulfilling life or what kind of like values the child ought to have then they should do their best to inculcate those kind <laughs> of uh, interests in yeah. in the child but if the child wants to do something else, they are not you. They are they are their own kind of like individual and 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 like trying to kind of um take an an actor and make them a a a, a doctor is like that that kind of parenting doesn't work. Okay. It does not create like better better outcomes for 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 children. It's about a wash. You have you 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 have the ones who internalize it and then you have the ones who eventually either early or later on will will just kind of like re re, re react against it. Okay. Well, do, and do, like did you you being a child who has kind of you know 
done everything that you're kind of did. You know that 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 you you you've never you've never been a disappointment to anyone. But that that's the thing, right? So like, I, and again, part of this is probably again, I am my own person, and I look at this from my own perspective. But it's like, I went to college and I studied law, and I you know didn't end up pursuing that, and I ended up pursuing, you know, again, I work in a different industry during the day, but I earn a lot now. I earn. You know, enough that I could possibly conceivably survive if things go right, uh, working at something that I love, which is working in, in film criticism and entertainment. But I have that college degree in a practical subject that, you know, if this didn't work out, could have given me a grounding in something that I would have landed on my feet. Like, and, you know, my parents, you know, worked hard for that and worked hard to give me that security net like that's the thing it's like it worked hard to give you the option yes and but also they didn't they didn't give you a degree in law darren you did that i i okay and that is yeah yes they yes they supported you but if you if you hadn't want to do that if you had ended up doing that in spite of yourself um it like it would it would be a very different um uh story all right but again part of part of me is like He's young, he's volatile, he doesn't like, realize that he can just do the law thing, sorry, do the medicine like, thing, take, and, like, have his degree and then pursue what he wants to pursue. Oh, but, like, take me as an example, then, like, as a contrary. I pretty much only ever do things I want to do. Like, I went, I, I studied philosophy in university because that's what I wanted to do at that time. This, like, the, the, the the thing that I was most interested in, like I'm fascinated by lots of things, but that's all I wanted to do. Like pretty much like one to seven, I think on the CAO were all courses that included philosophy. Um, and it did not matter to me what I would uh, do with that afterwards because I, I did the, there was a question is like, um, You've 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 spent kind of like six years in in secondary school. It's all building to this um, to this leaving certificate. Yeah, exactly. Your leaving certificate will determine kind of like what college you go to and what uh, subject you will study. Um, what do you want to study? That that's that, like for 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 a lot of people kind of our age in Ireland. It it like most people we knew kind of like went to some kind of form of third level education right mm. and i wanted to do philosophy and so that's what i did i i i think my i think my mother wanted me to kind of think about law but i know i i i was kind of like um like i sort of like considered it and that but it, it wasn't like my passion and I just kind of went for my passion, and my life turned out fine. No, <laughs> like I, I, it was, it was circuitous and everything, and and like it 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 I didn't follow a plan, but I'm 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 very kind of like pleased with how it went, and I wouldn't have thought it was dangerous okay. if 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 like say my father like got me into kind of philosophy. That was a very irresponsible thing of him to okay, do. Okay, all right, you, you know what right. I mean, like. Oh, and philosophy graduates don't do don't tend to do well in 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 terms of like their mental health. They tend to like populate the kind of psychiatric wards, like myself, um, and like like because because it's 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 a kind of like a topic that um, can can be very like kind of perturbing for a young mind. 
I, I don't know. Look, I just watched this and there were parts of this where like Keating is like, and again, the stuff would say Todd Anderson, where he's pushing it. And he's, and again, this is the bit where I think like Weir's direction is, is stunning. The sequence where he gets up and he tries to get him to make his a gulp yeah. um, in front of the class. He tries to get it. Like that sequence where the camera spins around the pair of them and it's a long take. It's again, virtual. It's really good filmmaking. Mm. It's very, it's beautifully shot. It's very intense. And it does feel like and again you know we'll talk like ethan hawk and robin williams like hawk by most accounts thought that like williams did not like him on set because hawk you know maybe has a reputation for being an intense actor um yeah and williams like wanted to make people laugh and particularly make the kids laugh between takes and hawk was very serious and felt like williams was kind of making very good for that role yeah yeah. Um, but uh, Hawk was saying that he felt that like Williams was trying to get him to break or trying to get him to crack or like he was like in some ways playing against his kind of performance or the way in what he was doing. And he said that he felt that at times he felt like, you know, Williams was kind of uncomfortable with him. I think that when they wrapped that scene, that shot where they do the camera move around them, the gulp scene, uh, Williams said, you're a very intense young man. Um, and I think that Hawk said that that felt kind of like an insult when I heard it at that moment in time. Yeah. But he found out afterwards Williams was actually really impressed with him. And he got his agent um, to sign up, to sign Ethan Hawke as a client saying that like this kid is going to be huge, uh, oh which is God. very charming. I find that really charming and really heartwarming. Yeah. Um, but you have this kind of like push and pull between them. And it's like, I'm watching that and I'm watching that and I'm going, this works out okay. But there's a version of this scene where Todd can't. He just can't do it. He doesn't have it in him. It's not something that he can... And that that moment is crippling. For there him. isn't a version of that scene where he doesn't have it in him because he, he does have it in him. I seen like there is a version of that scene where he can't get it out of him. Okay. I guess. Well, yeah, okay. We'll get, and I, I think but that in, is... But in, in, in a movie... The way movies work. I, I know they are it, stories they, in constructed universes and you would not put If them... he fails in that scene, it is only kind to of like a to set up act. a, yeah. yeah I, I know, and that is the benefit of having a narrative like that. But I'm watching this as somebody who is, you know, invested in the emotion of the scene rather right. than the story logic. And I'm like, there is a, ver as somebody who was like in school and was a socially awkward kid in some senses, there is a version of that scene you're also where an actor <laughs> like you're, I, I, you're, I was I actually did play yeah, bottom. You're also the Robert played... Sean Leonard. Kind yes, of I, I, I did. I played bottom in a Midsummer Night's Dream. I didn't play <laughs> puck, um, but I played a bottom who became an ass. Is how I describe the role. <laughs> um, but yeah, the like there is like somebody who is an awkward teen. There's a moment where you are like dragged up in front of people and you're told to perform, and it it doesn't work no and one it was is dragging just... you up to perform <laughs> you <laughs> were trying to like drag you away my way to the front of the room yeah. <laughs> um, it's like get out of my way ethan hawk todd if you're not going to perform make room for the rest of us Hit me on the stage <laughs> i was born to act darling <laughs> um but yes uh but there is a version of that where he can't do it and it's and again i mean i mean again in real life and it's like that is a moment that defines that character for the rest of his life that he can't do it and the fact that he can do it is great but yeah. part of me is like watching the movie and looking at neil and that's like that's the kid who can't do it that's the kid who he could put his head down he could go to his college and he could find himself there and he could always have this part of himself and afterwards he could go and he could explore it as an adult 
with more emotional maturity, with more experience, like actual grown-up, fully developed brain, where the stakes aren't as apocalyptic as they are when you're a teenager, when everything is life and death, and quite literally life and death. And he could have that moment then, and he would be a fully grown adult who would have a full and rich life. And it's like, no, things get so heightened in that moment, in that context, because that stuff was stirred up in him. But not and I, just... I know, I'm not saying it's Keating. Okay. Mm. No, not just Keating. I'm not saying it's Keating's fault. Yeah, no. Yeah, but also, no, because I so get what you mean. And I think your idea is a very Irish, very, like, also like post-recession kind of thing of like look why don't you just get that good degree and then you try it and you have something to fall back on I was the exact same I did arts but then I went and I did a master's in Smurfit and I'm so glad I have that to fall back on and I think when parents want that from you it is just a place of like we just want to make sure you're okay we want to make sure and it's another real Irish thing we want to make sure you can buy a house that's what parents care about at the end of the day you can buy a house that you are not going to be homeless that you are going to have a backup and that you are not going to be unemployed because we saw such high unemployment rates into the, like you know in the 80s 90s 2008 that we're kind of traumatized from it and all we care about is people having a job but like that 70s show dad is literally like he is like a bond villain do you know he's like you dropped the paper and, you know, you are not doing this. You embarrassed me in front of, you made me a liar out of me. <laughs> you made a liar. You made a liar out of me. Like, everything is so life or death with that fucking dad. And he, you know, so, and I, I so get what you mean. I kind of agree. Like, I'm all about trying to find, like, life's all about that sweet spot between doing what you should and doing what you want. And, you know, trying to be rational and trying to have a backup, but always, like, trying to pursue what you want to do. But, like... His, like if his dad was like you can go to college and then just do this and then you can try the acting but he doesn't know that and also these are some of the most sheltered human beings on earth yes they don't know yes. what girls are none of them if they have siblings they kind of seem to be pricks like Ethan Hawke's yep. you know perfect brother they have no social media they can't like I learned so many lessons when I was a teenager mainly from my three older siblings and just like life not school, not teachers, not my parents. And they have none of that. So they do not have the critical thinking. They do not have that mind to be like, right, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Everything is life or death for them. And that literally comes to yeah. be for Neil. Well, everything when you're a teenager is life and death. That's, yeah. that's, that's the delicate balance. Like, And that's something I like about this movie. And I think this yeah. movie captures so, well. Yeah. But it's, 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 it's kind of think- like you, you, sh- you should take that kind of like teenagers where everything is life and death. And then kind of neuter it, and and you know, make make like or teach them teach on them, like the edges, childproof. Yeah, exactly. Just teach them to half live life. Okay. <laughs> It's, I, 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 like, I'm, yeah, I know I'm, this is a point in which you and I very profoundly disagree. Yeah, yeah. I know. I'm aware of this. And like, okay. This is the end of it. The absolute end of it. I promise. We will move on to other subjects. But just because Emma I, brought I, up the, I, I, I kind of concede that I think a little bit um, that it's maybe easier for me to say. I think, um, I think you could have too, but I um, like if if I had only been relying on myself, I would have probably been like down and out, like like more more times that I that I could kind of count. But having kind of um, uh, support kind of mechanisms in place, which are always like kind of like, well, what do you want to do? Yeah, you know, and 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 like you know, you 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 should 
kind of um, uh, pursue whatever it is that you're interested in and 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 kind of like like stay with it and if you ever need to kind of like move home you yeah can. it's and there and we're yeah, encouraging exactly. uh, we'd be happy to have you around the house it'd be yeah, nice yeah. like that that is the thing i think we talked about this i think it was inception where i was like i feel like a lot of art has been ruined for me by the fact that i seem to have a very healthy relationship with my parents yeah like, i watch <laughs> things like i watch things like star wars and it's like screw you dad and i'm like man this luke skywalker is kind of whiny isn't he <laughs> like i Get over yourself. I like I watch Inception. It's like, really? You you need to work through the issues with the dad? I mean, come on, he gave you a company and an education. <laughs> what more do you want, Killian Murphy? Um but like and like again, this is again, I promise this is the end of it. And I'm well aware that whatever, like I was on shaky ground before, now I'm just on ice that is cracking. Part of me kind of like feels a little bit sympathetic to Kurtwood Smith's Thomas Perry. The he starts dad. off more sympathetic than he ends up. Then he ends up, yes. Although, oh, well, sorry, sorry. Then, then he ends before the suicide. After yes. the suicide, we really do feel. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of hard not to yeah, feel yeah. some measure of sympathy. I think, but like, it's things like he does say in the hallway in that moment where he calls him outside, uh, and he does do the "Don't embarrass me in front." Again, yeah. keep in mind it's 1959. It's America. America has this kind of class system. It has this kind of like very repressed, like the 60s have yet to arrive. He probably fought in the Second World War. That's probably why he has a sidearm. I mean, it is also America, which is probably why he has a sidearm. (laughs) But it's likely that he fought in the Second World War. He's somebody who came home. He got a job as part of, say, the GI Bill or GI Bill or say, you know, again, that the uh, Eisenhower, you know, kind of industrialization of America He's somebody who is upwardly mobile. And again, you mentioned there that Neil says, look, my family aren't as rich as all the other families here. And I know that they still live in a massive house, as Emma pointed out. I know he's still going to a private school. But there is a a sense of class anxiety there that explains why you made a liar out of me to these people is embarrassing to him and is something that matters to him because he's concerned about the idea of, like, how his family will be perceived. Yeah. Like, I... I was, I wasn't like the first generation of my, like on my mother's side to go to college, but my aunts went to college at the same time that I did. Like they went to college in their careers. They didn't get to go to college out of school. They got to go to college like while they were working. Wow. And there is that sense of like, there is that you're given this opportunity and it's a lot on you, but it's also a chance that means that you get to move forward and your kids get to move forward. And I think that like, there's the moment where, like, before the suicide happens, when he takes off his slippers to get into bed, which is a lovely little detail. And again, that whole sequence is so beautifully directed by Weir. I think Weir said when he was making the movie, the one thing he was concerned about was he didn't want anybody, any kids, particularly because this is a movie aimed at teenagers, to get ideas about suicide. Yeah. And to get ideas about the rom- suicide as a romantic ideation. Is or it not romanticized, though? He, tr- he, he like again yeah, I think it is difficult to do this without kind of romanticizing it to some extent yeah right because you are you are very much aligned with Neil in that moment but I think like what he shows yeah. and what he doesn't show tactically I think what he puts on screen- I I agree I think he so could have had Neil give like a grand soliloquy or like a, you know he could have like rec- like recited a poem and right before and we could have actually seen that and even doing you know the parents wake up he's like what's that the, the, the bang isn't that loud like loud at all it's not that clear so 
I, you know, it's kind and of he, hot. Yeah, I agree. Well, even even things like, say, and again, this is a directorly choice that I quite like, the, the fact that he doesn't show much of Neil, you see Neil's shadow rather yes. than seeing Neil, like, through a lot of that sequence, which gives you kind of like an impressionistic sense of, no, this is darkness. And I think, like, the, the example that Weir gives is that, like, he makes sure to give him a moment where he's with the father in the bedroom, where he could talk to him or say something, but he can't, and he portrays that as a moment of vulnerability rather than a heroic moment of triumph or defiance or whatever yeah but like that moment where like the father gets into bed and the mother is honest to goodness crying Mm. like she is shaken up by this and you get a sense like this is before the suicide it's like to them he is throwing away everything and to them everything that they have ever wanted everything that like their parents would have ever wanted for them this idea of being a family that is reasonably prosperous that has these opportunities that has presumably come from a background that is nowhere near as wealthy as the school that they're sending this kid to and the fact that like he doesn't understand what that is and i know you know again darren the squarest kid in the schoolyard is like but what about the parent why can't we identify with the parents Mm -hmm. but the idea that they can't communicate that to him uh, because they're products of like the 1950s or whatever. Yeah, they're all victims. And the fact that they're, mm. Like it's all, you know, again, some are more victims than others. I'm not like Thomas Perry isn't the unsung hero of this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, but I do find myself like watching it and feeling a little bit like, like I can see how. But for, for whose sake is that? It's like we've had hard lives so that our child can also have a hard life. <laughs> but they don't i think it's like they don't know better and i do i agree with what darren is saying but you know what i would have loved just 20 seconds just 20 seconds of neil's father having an interaction with let's say charlie's father who's meant to be a lot wealthier and charlie's father maybe you know being a bit demeaning maybe making a jab at him for having less money at least just showing some insight because first of all does the mother speak no but women don't have opinions and everyone knows that yeah and so great. I mean, you you do know that like Laura Flynn Boyle was cut from this movie. Like one of like she was the- going to be Catwoman in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're thinking but, of Sean Young. Yeah. <laughs> oh, of- sorry, 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 sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, Laura Flynn Boyle was cast in this movie in like arguably its most like prom- one of its most prominent female roles. She was supposed to be Ginny, who is Chet's sister. Um, it's a deleted scene. Yeah. Yeah. So she was cut basically from the movie. Um, <laughs> I give up. <laughs> she's in the credits yeah she does she gets like a featured she's pro- featured prominently on like the first card after the uh after the movie ends sorry emma i cut you off there <laughs> what was uh, yeah uh, if you would just if uh, i think you are tapping into something that is very honest and like yeah the, the parents are victims of capitalism and white picket fence america i know we're probably like a few we're like a good few years before reagan but that kind of like yeah very post-world war ii america where well, everything well, was again, so this repressed. is a product of Re- like this is a product of the reagan era like yeah is- sorry yeah, yeah. retro i could have retroactively it's, yeah but like so Dar- much of like Reagan's- darren wrote that follow-up to uh uh, Papa Don't Preach <laughs> which is Papa, Papa Do Preach pa- there was a song wasn't there Papa Just Wants What's Best For You <laughs> which was like a, a response to um, Papa Don't Preach Papa Don't Preach so somebody like decided <laughs> like this song isn't very conservative yeah, it, need, I mean, it needs a it needs a uh, a counterpoint it yeah, needs like exactly. a diss track uh, yeah, a reaction let's start a discussion here yeah. yeah let's have a conversation well no, no to, to, to Emma's point about like the Reaganness of this again it's worth noting that like 
during the Reagan era, you have this swell in 50s nostalgia. Yeah. And I mean, you can point to things like, say, the, the remaking of monster movies like The Thing from Another World or The Blob or whatever. Uh, but you can point to movies like, say, Back to the Future, which is very much engaged with the 1950s. Things like Stand By Me, which is set during the 1950s. Yeah. And obviously this as well is set in 1959. And you have this idea of... Again, this this conversation you have with Reagan's, you know, City on the Hill, Good Morning, or Morning in America. No, I would say Reagan's Good Morning America, which sounds like <laughs> a nightmare of a TV show. But Reagan's uh, It Is Morning in America. And this yeah. idea of going back to that kind of 50s, like, romanticism and idealism. And I think this is part of that. Like, I think, I think Emma's right to say this is a product, or at least engaged with, the Reagan era. Def- you know, by, definitely. By the way, by the way, is Danny Aiello... That song, Danny Aiello, <laughs> the actor. Yes, um, American actor Danny Aiello did. Um, Papa, Papa wants the best for you. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds kind of seedy. Like, it's like Papa. Danny Aiello on the album cover with Papa wants the best for you. It's um kind of yeah. It it feels like something that you find in a section of a video store. You're not allowed to go as a child. Um, but anyway. But yeah, like, I, I, sorry, sorry, to Emma's point, though, I think you are right, though, that there is something with that conversation that's happening in the 1980s involving the 1950s. Yeah, yeah. I never I never thought, thought of it like that, but so, because I kind of forgot for a second that, yeah, this was made, well, who was, 1989, was that Bush Senior? Was it, or was it, was that it we, was, yeah. Royal We, yeah. But it was very, there is such a Regan element to it. And then I never thought of that, that the 80s and 50s are so tied in that way it's so interesting but what um, yeah it's it's it, that the parents are just as much victims of kind of these broader issues than the children but as Andrew is saying is that as a parent you you should be able to kind of decide what's best for your kid um but maybe it is kind I of I said that <laughs> <laughs> No, Wait, I think I think I said the opposite. You should decide that what your kid decides is best for them is or what's that, best for your child. Just because you're doomed to a shitty life doesn't mean that you have to like your you have to subject your children to it. That's what you said earlier. Or did I take it out of context? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 and yeah. you know, absolutely. But I think I think it's such a a choice made by the script that Neil's parents are meant to be lesser off. So you are meant to be like, oh, you know. They, you know, they, they don't striving. know. They're striving. They're striving. And they, they want certain things because, you know, p- p- like they're striving because they have to and Charlie's parents don't. And I think if they fleshed that out a tiny bit more. But at the end of the day, this is kind of a kid's film. Like the principal is yeah. like this big, scary villain who doesn't understand anything. Like, you know, the villains are villains and the heroes are heroes in this film. And, yeah. you know, you kind of forget that. And like, again, just to kind of like focus on the... To bring it back to the Robin Williams stuff, to bring back the Keating stuff, I think it's interesting that, like, we've singled out Robin Williams as, like, the centerpiece of the movie, the heart, the beating heart of the movie. I think it's, it's, watching this for the first time, I was struck by how restrained it is with Keating, where, like, Keating is arguably a supporting character. The arcs generally belong to the kids, and it goes out of its way to give, like, the four central kids arcs. And we'll probably, we've talked a little bit... We know very little about Keating, really. Yes, that's it exactly, which I quite like. Which was he nominated for at the Oscars? Best leading or best supporting? Uh, I am going to go to the fact machine and check, because I was hoping that you wouldn't ask me that question. (laughs) I'm sorry, I... I, I No, it's a fair question. (laughs) I think it's lead. And we're back from the fact machine. The movie was nominated for four Academy Awards, winning one. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor. So mm-hmm. yes, Best Lead Actor uh, and Best Screenplay written directly for the screen, uh, which it won. 
So yeah, he was nominated as a lead, which feels a little bit like category fraud, I think. Yeah, like Michelle Williams is here for sure. <laughs> well, there's there's one every year. Yeah, but like I, I I do I do think that like there is something fascinating in the fact that like he is this presence who is so big and bombastic because he's Robin Williams and he needs to be because he's the inciting incident for this. He's the one who gives them the idea for the Dead Poet Society. Mm. And again, like part of me when I was watching this was like. Am I going to, like, as, like, the squarest person on this podcast, as the lamest of the lamos, as the Cameron in this discussion, apparently, am I going <laughs> cool in spite of your aspirations to be on cool? I try yeah. really hard. Um, to Are we cool. the first Bueller trio? I will take that. <laughs> <laughs> I, am I dying the to Cameron? be the only one? I will happily take the Cameron from Ferris Bueller over the Cameron from this movie. So, yeah. um, but what I was going to say, like, I, I, I was going into this movie, like, ready to find Keating to be this kind of, like, weird figure who is kind of, like, worshipped and glorified by the movie and stuff. And he is. But what I really liked is that he's a really fascinating character. Yeah. He's really interestingly written and he's... He's not the cliche that you imagine him to be based on, like, popular culture's endorsement or embrace of this movie. Where, like, he's actually, like, he encourages the kids, he encourages them to think, he encourages them not to conform. But he's also, like, doesn't encourage them to break the rules for the sake of breaking the rules. That moment when he talks to uh, Nuanda about, like, the the breaking yeah. like the, the newspaper stunt and he's like that was a bad idea you shouldn't have done it don't I admire it kind of mm. yeah you, yeah that's it exactly um and the bit like you know again later on when he kind of he reckons with the suicide of neil and he does kind of you get a sense that he does feel in some way like he was maybe and before the suicide as well oh when he tells he neil of... to talk to his father when yeah. he's like what if i just did it and didn't tell him and he's like no you should talk to him yeah and the moment, in the car that like the, the moment i really loved is the moment where his father grabs neil out of the theater and takes him to the car and i can't remember if it's cameron or who it is who gets ready to intervene it's it's and, like, Knox, stop- i think it's Knox. he just stops him and he goes no you'll just make it worse yeah and uh, that was like I was I was in that moment ready for a big searing moment where like Keating would like stand up to Perry and give him this big speech, this piece of his mind about how he was a monster and how he should let the kid express himself, you know, mm. that sort of stuff. But I really like that the movie didn't go that very yeah. easy, very obvious well, path. He isn't, he isn't it's a- because he's, yeah, it's believable. And it, I think the interesting thing about them is that the kind of bottom line is Keating was, the, was them once as well. He isn't this like bohemian, like I know he comes from London, so you're meant to think he's kind of a bit, you know, exotic, like, oh, he comes from another country, but he was them. He is just like them. He went to this school. He went through it all. He understands, he understands what's at stake. And I think that's really interesting. And you're so right. They could have had him, like they could have had Rob Williams go weird and be like, fuck your parents or whatever. But no, he has that kind of rationality at the heart of him that makes you kind of believe like, oh, this could, could well, very well be a teacher. He knows when the line when teacher stops and parents starts, he knows that line and never to cross it. And that's what makes it so heartbreaking that he's blamed because he actually did want Neil to talk to his dad and he did respect that, you know, he's not there. He's not their father. And yeah, as you said, he's just a really interesting character. And again, like it's worth noting that Williams somewhat tempered his performance for this movie, Mm. but famously um, 
we're and again like this is something weird does we talked about in the truman show as well when he's got an actor who is this high energy comedian like kerry where he will just like book a day or two of filming to just let them get the energy out mm. um where like there's there's a shot in the truman show that lasts all of three seconds of jim carrey playing with a lawnmower in a wide shot and weir is like i basically booked a day to let him play with the lawnmower and we use three seconds of footage at uh, <laughs> the end of the day when he was at his most like relaxed um, but there is like here, he basically booked a day with Williams and the kids to get like a lot of the energy out of Williams system. He famously, he had to lie to Disney about budgeting because they didn't have any budget for like extra shooting days. Um, they only allocated what was in the script, but he was like, look, you need to get this rapport with the kids, but you also maybe need to get it out of your system. And the only footage from that day that appears in the movie is the bit where he reads Shakespeare in the voice of Marlon Brando and John Wayne. That is pure Williams just ad-libbing um, in in the in the film, which I find fascinating as well. That bit is so important because these group of young lads, they're not going to respond to some random man talking Shakespeare. Like in those bits when he's doing voices and he's like, and he's, you know, he's referring to pop culture and films, kid things that kids love and actually want to engage with. You're like, oh my God, yeah. Of course, anyone would love Robin Williams as a teacher. Like, of course they love him and of course they're engaged with him because he is like this kind of entertainer and there are those fun bits and it's not just all weighed down by really deep English, like theory and literature. I'd love a compilation of (laughs) teachers trying to... Channel the energy of Robin Williams. <laughs> I'm failing. Have you seen that Simpsons, like that Simpsons joke where they talk about like how Goodwill Hunting ruined an entire generation of educators? Where they have like the kid talking about like the teacher talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And Christian's like, ah, no, don't do that to me. And the Cuban Missile's like, rah, gotta come in here. And it's like, yep, Goodwill Hunting ruined an entire generation of teachers. Um, but that that is. Wait the- a second. Do you, do you, do you mean Dead Poet Society? Dead Poets Society. What did I call it? Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill... Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to say it. I was like, I think he means Dead Poets. <laughs> sorry, Dead Poets Society. Apologies. But like, and, and again, that's, that's, again, we'll maybe talk about that maybe later on, but there is that, uh, that, that re- resistance oh, that you see. Oh, this had a lot what? of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> I maybe, don't think you can budget that as an expense to the school. Maybe he's Marlon Brando, or maybe, maybe he's, um... <laughs> Yeah. Al Pacino from Scarface. Oh. oh, what if I was a Scottish person? <laughs> hey, who? Hey. Why is Mike like Myers? Twenty-five like, minutes later, <laughs> and it's like, uh, uh, what if I was Eugene Doubtfire? <laughs> like, can we go back to the textbook now? Yeah. <laughs> but like, um, and again, this is something I think Andrew alluded to the article that was written in the Atlantic. There are other articles as well, included in the show notes, where like there are like teachers of English who are like actually Keating is a terrible teacher of English, yes. um, which I find kind of interesting. Again, this is that kind of you know J uh, the J Evans Pritchard argument about the idea, and and again, this is where Darren is like, watch me, watch me spoil the fun for everybody. I'm the Cameron <laughs> of the group, but there's a the argument that that article makes, and it's quite a good one, is that like. It's all fun is great. Everyone loves fun. I love fun. Darren says, convincing absolutely nobody. <laughs> sure, um, sure, John. Like, sure, yeah. <laughs> I am hip and with the kids. Darren says, <laughs> taking a chair and sitting on it back to front. Like Zebuskabi. Hello, fellow kids. Yeah. How do you do? <laughs> How do you do, fellow kids? <laughs> like I am, I am hip and with it. Um, gets out like kind of like a thick mass 
and puts it puts it down and then stands on the table <laughs> <laughs> just so i don't scuff the desk the yeah, desk yeah. is a very it's a very expensive <laughs> desk um but like the the argument that is made in that atlantic piece and i find it a very credible one is the fact that like keating's rhetoric is is all good and it's good to encourage free thinking and all that sort of stuff but the idea is that like a lot of the interpretations of poetry that he offers in the movie while talking about how much he loves poetry is uh not necessarily like how those what those poems actually mean so like robert frost's uh two roads diverged in a wood for example right the and i took the one less traveled and that has made all the difference right that is a poem that frost himself has talked about how incredibly frustrated he is by how many people misinterpret that as a poem about how great it is to take the path less traveled when it is in fact according to frost and most interpretations a poem about like the fact that when you're in the woods and you have to pick two paths, you have no way of knowing where either ends. And you have to tell yourself retroactively that you made the right choice because it's the choice that you made. You have to retroactively justify the choice that you made. It's as- like, oh my God. Peter Best says that like, um, he reckons he's actually much happier that he isn't in the Beatles, <laughs> which is possibly true, but also it's like, of course you are. Very, very convenient. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course you are. And I mean, and there are things like, say, and you know, again. Ringo Starr says, thank God I was in the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like things like, say, the, the Congo poem that they do, right? Which yeah. is where they're in like the old Indian cave is how it's described. And like that is a moment where. It is the most both simultaneously 1959 and 1989 the movie is in a given moment where you have a bunch of white kids in quote unquote the old Indian cave like rapping um, the rapping basically rapping the lyrics to is it the Congo by Vachel Lindsay which is a, a poem a study of the Negro race is the subtitle of the poem that they rap in that scene and it's like that feels a little bit like you should have some context for that. It is important to maybe have context for these things. And that is maybe why it's important to have like actual education about this stuff rather than just, you know, go into a cave in the woods and rapping on the subject of the Negro race by a bunch of white kids in 1950s America. Um, I don't know. Maybe. Okay, fine. I'm on. I hate fun. That's my problem. No, I, I think that's fair. No, absolutely. Like, but like, I, you know, you're going to watch this. Yeah. It's just, of course, that film is going to be like at anything 1989, especially these kids. Like, there isn't one person of color in the entire film. So, of course. Mm. No, no, but, but the point I'm making more broadly is that like academic rigor has its place and, and that sort of stuff. And it feels like the, the tearing out of the introduction. And by the way, I do love that that introduction is called Understanding Poetry, which is an allusion to an actual book that was written in 1938 called uh, Understanding Poetry, which is like literally the textbook on teaching and reading poetry in American schools. So I love that it's very, it's very clearly a direct screw you from Thomas Schoolman yeah. to a book that he had to read. It's not at all subtle. It's not at all veiled. Mm. Now, to be fair, J. Evans Pritchard doesn't exist. He is a he is a fragment created for the movie, but is a very direct screw you to the idea of like academic study of poetry. But I, while I, I am part of me is sympathetic to like the academics who are like so no, that, but that but scale actual te- doesn't exist. No, no, no. That that scale is is nuts. It's a it's a parody of like what people think a uh, an education in in English is. I would say though that like I am sympathetic to that argument, and 
I think it's a fun argument to have or think about, at least for me. Looking around, it seems like it is only for me a fun argument to have. But that's uh, that's obviously not what the movie is actually about. This isn't a movie that is actually meaningfully about poetry or about the teaching of poetry. It's more using that as a launching pad to be a, a movie about, like, the school of life. Uh, so I, I don't mind it that much, but I do, I do kind of find that, that fun to think about. Mm. Um, fun fact about Keating. In the original draft of the script, uh, he was supposed to be diagnosed uh, with leukemia. And he was supposed to die at the end of the movie. When Peter Weir read that script... So um, which which character? Keating. Oh, and okay. does Neil die? In does Neil it, it commit suicide? In Neil the always died. Neil. Neil always. Oh, died. so it's a double whammy of Neil commits suicide and Keating <laughs> has leukemia. Yeah. Jesus. Um, yeah, and like Keating gets fired at the end and then goes off to die alone of leukemia, just no, to underscore like the really downbeat ending. And like again, like when. Um, when we were read it uh, again, when they were making this, this was what attracted Dustin Hoffman to the movie. Like Thomas Schulman has talked about how like he had to take meetings with Hoffman because Hoffman was directing and Hoffman's like, it's going to be great. I'm going to lose 20 pounds to really sell how sick this character is. And she was like, I, I don't feel you need to. I don't think that wasn't what I had in mind as a writer. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to lose 20 pounds. I'm going to maybe get another Oscar. It's going to be great. And I'm like, I feel like, no, that's not what I'm going for here. Um, but apparently when Weir read the script, he was like, yeah, that is the one thing. If you want me to direct that movie, I have to be able to exercise that from the plot. Yeah. Because, and the, and, and his logic is, it's very convincing. Like, he rings up Katz, Katzenberg, and Katzenberg's like, come on. Like, dead teacher? That's Oscar written all over it. Like, that gets any actor who plays at an Oscar if that character dies at the end. He's got leukemia. It's just basic maths. And Weir's like, yes. But if Keating is saying Carpe Diem sees the day... Vive la vive, uh, because he's dying. That takes away the actual central theme and like message of the movie. If the only reason why this adult is saying you have an obligation to live life is because he's counting down the days until he dies, that undermines the point that this movie is making. Yeah. And Katzenberger's like, yeah, you're right. Like, cut it out, see if it works. And he's like, I literally took four pages out of the script. That was it. And it just flowed perfectly, hmm. uh, which is kind of because it, it's kind of interesting because it does. It makes Keating, it takes away Keating's arc. Keating isn't the main character. If you put that, if you put that arc in, he is the main character. Yes. It becomes his story. Like he has, he changes and he grows and he has an arc. If you take that out, he becomes more of like a static presence around which the other arcs play out. And I actually think it's really kind of generous of like Williams who had obviously seen the script because he accepted the role Initially. and then got like Jeff Canoe fired um, to go, fine, you're taking out the meat of the part, the part that actually probably wins me the Oscar and go, yeah, that, that, that works for me. I, I think that's quite remarkable. I, ne yeah, I, I couldn't imagine it with, you're right though. If you, if he had that kind of over arc, it would have been his story. And, but I don't know if it's anyone's story. Whose story is this? Because I like is Ethan Hawke meant to be the screenwriter? He's meant to be whatever his name is. I forget his name. Like Schumann, it's kind Thomas of, Schumann. Yeah, is that meant to be Ethan Hawke? Is it Ethan Hawke's story? Whose story is it? Like I, I think it's all four of the primary kids' stories in different ways. I think it's an ensemble. I think it's like Stand by Me, where like 
Gordy is the main character. That's the Will Wheaton character. And I think that Todd is that one where he is the witness and the narrator. The witness. Yeah. I feel like it's Todd's story. Yeah. 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 And so he's, he's the one telling it. And then Neil is the one who tragically dies in the same way that say, is it Charlie River Phoenix's character tragically dies in Stand By Me? Yeah. For example, as well. And that like, obviously he dies years later, but it's his death that motivates the reminiscence. Yeah. Um, And so here, I think you have that with Neil where Neil is Todd's roommate and Todd looks at Neil. And again, not exactly subtle homoerotic tension in this movie. Um, but like they sit on the roof together. They have conversations. Neil like encourages Todd to get out of his own skin and stuff like that. And Todd kind of witnesses Neil doing this thing to rebel against his father and is maybe kind of inspired by that as well. Like, I, I think I think Todd is like Neil is the protagonist, but Todd is maybe the audience identification figure, if that makes sense. Is that it's funny how earlier and I didn't think of this, how. I was like, oh, it's comparison to Virgin Suicides because I always hated, hated, hated that that film isn't actually the Lisbon sister story. It's the perspective of these four horny, nosy neighbours. And I always hated that. And that always added to my kind of idea of the book and the subsequent film are actually not as feminist as people think they are because it's not whose perspective is it? And these four sisters are just these figures of these like four horny lads kind of like fascination. I always hated that. I wanted their perspective because it's their story. And I think with Dead Poet Society, it's the same thing that if you, if it was, if it was, if it was Keating's story and his perspective, then it isn't at all about these kind of themes of, you know, like trying to find, you know, inspiration in a world that feels so devoid of it. It's more kind of like, oh, this teacher trying to become a better man and inspire these kids. It totally swaps it. But I think it's kind of nice that it, it almost floats. Like, you know, there isn't really a central protagonist or who's the protagonist, who's the narrator, who's the witness. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. You do have, it is an ensemble. Yeah, I mean, do we want to talk very briefly then about like the other kids? So like Knox Overstreet, which is like one of those great names. It's like Noel Roy. <laughs> it's on site Nox. for Knox Overstreet. Let's get into Knox. <laughs> it is on okay. site for that man. Okay, all right. Let's get into Knox. Predator. Our Knox life. Predator, number one predator. Sorry, we're talking about, yeah. Okay, so whatever, he's loves... Not the movie Predator, sexual. <laughs> Predator. Um, look, I, it's 1989, I get that, and it's, it's 1959, but like... But it's 16 Candles, it's, you know, that's, it's like that sort of stuff. It's the yeah, Revenge of the Nerds. It's maybe even mild by the yes, kind by of standard of what was... Accepted um, in like 80s cinema. Honestly, compared yeah. to James Spader, and Pretty in Pink, like... Even apologize. good. <laughs> yeah like say anything i think is around the same time as this as well is another sort of like harass a girl until she likes you movie completely and like using carpe diem because that's that's what's dangerous like what we're saying earlier about dangerous is like and i I don't mean to get too dark and like i don't mean to be like overly uh all men are shit i'm not but like it can be dangerous to make young men feel like they are on top of the world. There is something in that. I don't want, I don't want to get too dark, but you kind of tell men that they should seize the day and they should act on every single instinct that they have. That is dangerous. It absolutely is, especially young lads who are in a position of power. And it kind of touches on that, that you give these guys this kind of I- these ideals to, you know, you, you follow every instinct, you do whatever your mind tells you to, you carpe diem, you seize the day. A girl ends up getting kissed, which doesn't want to be kissed, which she's unconscious. Again, I know that's not the point. Fondled, yes. Yeah. Fond- like, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I do agree with you. I think the movie is nuanced enough in the sense that, like, I, I think Knox, 
feels like he owes it to himself to give it a go. And I don't think he feels like he's entitled to have her like him. Because I think the where he leaves it at is at a certain point is 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 that he did this he did this crazy kind of ill advised thing and it's like kind of oh and and like what did she do and it's like oh well I you know I it, I I I did it you know it 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 was it was maybe it was maybe a crazy thing to do. But I, um, well, it was a I thing for I, me to self actualize. I, I, I went, like, yeah, for, again, know. like I, I, um, and and then, like, yeah, I'll probably never see her again. And it's her who kind of comes to to him, him in the end, like, again, but say, because it's a script and it's it's a design that way, like, right? It's, you right, know, again, right. like that, that's the thing where it's like, and that, and that he, 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 he's kind of, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, um, I, I was, I was an idiot or I was an asshole or, Kind yeah, of. but you still end up with a situation where that wouldn't have happened if he hadn't have done that. Yeah, right? no, I, I, I don't think it, it. Like by today's standards, it's it, it's it's especially kind of um, well conceived. But I, but I, I think it's by the standards more, of Pretty in Pink or Sixteen Candles. Or yeah, yeah, that is more that <laughs> that is, there's more kind of like subtlety or like consideration given to it. Um, I maybe. Part of me, and again, to, to, to Emma... That's a, like a light defense, you to, know. No. To Emma's point, though, like, part of me is like... And again, this is because I am a nerd who generates movie... I'm a robot who generates movie <laughs> yeah. Um, But it's like, as a teenage boy, to Emma's point, where... Like, as it... And it's, it's not necessarily one film. It's not like I'm laying the evils of the world or of, like patriarchy on solely on the shoulders of dead poet society but it's like you grow up as a young man and again i'm willing to accept that it may just be socially awkward young men it may just be people like me for example or whatever Mm. but like as a teenager you have this thing that gets in your brain and you hopefully outgrow it eventually uh maybe some people don't and i suspect from talking to women some people don't but as a teenage boy you get this idea from popular culture that the way to make a girl like you is to have the courage to tell her that you like her in a way that is as public and as awkward and as like putting pressure on her as possible. You, 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 yeah. you don't read any social cues. You don't have any self-doubt. You don't ever ask yourself, does she like me? Would she like me? It's like, no, you need to put your best foot forward. You need to straighten up, stand right, project yourself and put that on her and that is all that it takes uh, for her to like you back. Um, and like as a teenage boy, that was something that maybe messed up some of my relationships with women. Yeah, I, I don't think, though, that Knox feels entitled to having his affection kind of. Uh, but 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 that the way the story is told could encourage somebody who's not Knox but, to, yeah, to, and, and to, be to, clear- to to expect to, to be clear, to get it, it's more subtle. It's not. It's not even like I was like I expect. Like if I do that, I will get a date. It's just like that is like the way that you do this thing. And there's no consideration for that when you do this, you make the other person incredibly uncomfortable, and you make the other person feel incredibly awful about themselves, and you make the other person possibly embarrassed uh, at the best of times, maybe even feel a little bit threatened um, at the worst of times. Like if if somebody sho- he shows up at her school with 
like roses um yeah. out of nowhere and it's like if somebody did that to you particularly like in 1950s america um but like at any point if somebody shows up at your school with roses um what like that is a spectacle that you are at the center of and Knox. He can go back to his academy. He can go back to his cave. Yeah. He can go back to his friends. Exactly. But you... That, that will... is very embarrassing for her. And that's embarrassing yeah. at the best of times, because when that happens, she also has to run through her head like, he's probably a nice guy who can handle rejection, but what if he can't? Um, and all that, you know, that that's sort of the, the complications that kind of come with that, where you're like, this is somebody who thinks that this is a way to engage in this sort of, like, courtship so if i this was is where certain they're... by the way the whole way through the movie because i i i'd kind of forgotten the movie and then i saw that and i was like that's not laura flynn boyle at least i don't think it is and then i was like oh so she's going to be a rosalind i've obviously forgotten about it and he's going to like you know pine for this woman and 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 then realize that there there's this girl Ginny who does who, actually um, like him. who does actually like him yeah. and um and that he's been going about things all wrong he's kind of like been you know uh, going after this kind of unrequited sort of uh, I mean, no. like, again, I'm not putting all of that on this movie individually. Yeah. Um, But I think that, like, as a, like, a broader cultural canon kind of thing, it's like, that's, I don't know, as some as a kid who grew yeah. up with this stuff, I, as I, a boy who grew up with this stuff, it's like... It's kind of, it's like, it, it, it wouldn't... And I mean, boys are the center of the universe as this movie. Does. Of course, of course. I, yeah. I suppose it wouldn't speak to the kind of point of this movie... If he had been faint of heart, yes, right, yes. Well, that that that's the thing. That's that's yeah. again. That's the that's the thing where Darren is the lame killjoy. But how do you like, do maybe that some, without? Yeah, that's it. Of, without undermining yeah. the core theme of the movie, and like Darren's like, this is why maybe the core theme of the movie needs some modulation. Where maybe there are times when it's okay to be less of yourself just for the comfort of other people, and then you can express yourself <laughs> otherwise. And it's like, no, public display of affection all of the time. See, if you were any less of yourself, we would, um, there would be less of Darren in the world, and that would be a bad thing. If I were any more of myself, I'm not sure the world could handle it. <laughs> the yeah. flip side of that. Um, but sorry, Emma, we, like myself and Andrew have been bickering over this. What, what, what about yourself? Do you have anything more you want to say about like the knock stuff or anything like that? Or? Just as, like, yeah, as you said that what you were saying there, that these kind of displays of affection were so prominent in 80s cinema. And I think it's funny because I think this type of behavior is now would categorize as love bombing, which is a very like common thing at the start of abusive relationships. Love bombing is maybe like the most generous interpretation of it. Yeah. Again, love bombing is like, love bombing is the, the version of this where it works and it kind of like people respond to it if, like positively and affirmatively. Exactly. It's like, even if it works, it's love bombing kind of thing, I think. Exactly. And you know what? I wouldn't have a problem with Knox's behavior. It's just for the scene when he, he's like, he, that is sexual assault. He kisses her when she's unconscious. Like she does not consent and he kisses her and I don't care if he doesn't kiss her in the mouth or maybe he does. <laughs> he kisses all over. Yeah, she's asleep on his lap and he kind of starts kissing her on the face. Oh yes, that's right. And that and is, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he kind of caresses her hair first as well. And yeah. Like, 
where is this going? And I do, uh, it's annoying because that sentiment of like, they were like, what'd she say? What'd she say? And he's like, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, he did something for himself. I so get that. And I actually think that's a really nice sentiment that sometimes it doesn't matter that someone would like reciprocates those feelings or not. At least you had the bravery to say it. But like, yeah. he just never, first of all, they don't know each other. He knows nothing about her. All he says is like, she's beautiful. She's beautiful. He doesn't give a shit about her personality. And he never, ever take like, I know what Andrew's saying is like... How many words do we think they've said to each other by that point? 20. Maybe. Maybe. Like, who who knows? Because he can't, he can't talk to her on the phone. Like, even when he picks up the phone, he can't really talk to her. And when he goes to the part of the house, all the stuff is happening around her and stuff like that. And they barely get to interact. And even the, the first night they meet, he's there because he's invited by her boyfriend's yes. parents. Imagine your parents, like if my parents invited like this, gr- <laughs> this girl over that, so, that they randomly knew and then she started like being in love with my boyfriend. I'd be like, excuse me, sweetie. Like, this is my house. Like, and, like not, not for Darren to jump on team parents, but there's a bit where Knox is like, you know, I mean, if that happened, like his parents would be upset and her parents would be upset and my parents would be upset. And I'm like, I don't feel like that would be an unreasonable stance for any of those people who welcomed you into their house to take. Exactly. (laughs) And it's just, he's not entitled to her, but he feels entitled to do whatever he can to get her attention. And that's not fair because you are putting her in a really uncomfortable and awful position. Um, And he just doesn't give a shit about that. But then, of course, with the script, and she does have a bit of agency. She is like, you, like... You know when she when he's like, oh my god, what are you doing here? And yeah. she's like, oh, it's fine for you to show up to my school, but then I come here and you know you you're mad at me. Like she does have that tiny yeah. bit of agency, yeah. but yeah, I feel like the film would have, would have been the same without that kind of storyline. Like I don't think it actually added that much because she's not really fleshed out as a character yeah. at all. Well, yeah, I it think... does feel like that's one of four leads, and it's probably the least of the four leads in terms yeah. of like character development and like narrative agency and actual like centrality to the plot, like. Yeah. Todd is central to the plot, Neil is central to the plot, and even Charlie is central to the plot. And Charlie's all, like, a lot intersect. more compelling than Knox, for yeah. sure. And they all they all intersect with Keating as well. Like they all have different relationships with Keating. I can't tell you what Knox's particular relationship to Keating is. Keating talks vaguely about like why did we learn poetry to and woo it's, like, women. Communicate. It's like, no, to woo women. Mm. But he doesn't have like any direct interaction with Knox, which is good. Because like this movie would not be improved if Keating was like, you know what you need to do? You need to go to her school and make a public spectacle of her. Yeah. Um but like it would maybe be improved if it's he like, had go live in a different country <laughs> and, and, and and have a picture of her on your day. <laughs> maybe 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 rub it suggestively. Yeah. Um but like part of me feels like the way that you fix that plot is you, you basically have to rework the script to make Knox as prominent as Neil. So that like Neil goes in and he has the conversation with Keating and Keating's like, you know what? You should like talk to your dad. That's how you'll work through this actual conversation. And it's like, good point Keating. And then like Neil goes outside and Knox is waiting and Knox comes in. And it's like, you know what you need to do? You need to have an actual conversation with this girl in a place where she feels comfortable and talk through your feelings yes. and maybe get to know her a little bit. <laughs> Is there a character who uh, who who doesn't require kind of uh, John Keating as much as Charlie doesn't? <laughs> Which I, lo- I love Charlie. Like this is the irony of it. Is like I should hate. Oh, sorry, Charlie. sorry, Nuanda. Nuanda, yes. <laughs> I like I love Nuanda. Like, which is again kind of contrary to everything I have said on this podcast at this point. But like Nuanda is is just great. I love. Charlie. I love him too. I think I think he's the most compelling of the. 
of the four. I like, I know you're meant to love Neil, yes. but he doesn't really jump out at me. But there is something. And Charlie, like, you kind of think he's arrogant. You kind of think he's a prick. But he is the most loyal to the club. He doesn't sign the sheet. He's willing yeah. to get expelled over it. Now, you could argue, like, oh, he doesn't have as much to lose because he comes from the wealthiest family. But he definitely is the most, has the most integrity, I would say. Gade, Gade Hansen, um, the actor, he, 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 he's the lost Culkin brother yes of this cast like that's the thing it's like he's he such a cool kid yeah 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 <laughs> but like he just disappears as well from this cast like obviously like robert sean leonard goes and does house for like eight years ethan Hawke becomes ethan Hawke. charles does with the good he, wife is he, it and, does he and win like an a em- load of things yeah like like, like that right yeah. i don't know if he wins the emmy but he's nominated for the emmy this is not a tv podcast i'm allowed to get that wrong but he is at least nominated for an emmy wait who is, and is that like, the actor who played Knox? oh yes he Josh, is the Josh good charles wife. yeah Knox, yeah mm. Because uh, he's in The Good Wife. Yeah. And then, like, Gail, Gail Hansen just kind of disappears of the four. Like, it's like, he's the one who has very little cultural footprint. Like, I have his full filmography here. His, it's going to take IMDb me a while. His picture is him from this movie. Yes, that's it. You you Google this movie and it's like, Ethan Hawke as an adult. Uh, Robert Sean Leonard as an adult. Uh, Robin Williams as an even older adult. <laughs> and then it's like, no, Gail Hansen is just Gail Hansen from this movie. Like... Let's run through his filmography. It won't take long. He appeared in Zelig, which I believe is the Woody Allen movie. Um, By the way, he's good in this. Like we're, yes. we're yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, we're yeah. Pra- praising him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he appeared in Dead Poet Society, Shaking the Tree, Under Surveillance, the final, the finest hour, aka Desert Shield, Double Vision, The Class of '96, which is t- which is a TV show. Two separate episodes of Murder She Wrote. Nice. Uh, and then he appeared as and this. His final appearance is as a security guard in Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction. Security guard number one. What year was that? Better than being secu- That's 1998. He Weird. was 29 making this movie. He was a married man. Yeah. Um, yeah. I uh, read that. He was the, the oldest of the kind of um, children. Yes. Um, and I, I think he's really good. I think like, and again, there's that moment where like they're doing the the walking exercise and Keating is like, are you not going to join us, Charlie? And he's like, I'm exercising my right not to walk. And I'm like, finally, the movie gets it. Yeah. Um, which I'm like, that that's that's good. Clever movie. Clever. Movie. <laughs> Clever. <laughs> I want to talk maybe a little bit about the response to the movie, but is there anything else that you want to talk about with the characters that we haven't discussed? Do you Any know, members of the cast? What I... What I really took notice to that I don't remember ever noticing before was, and I really, it's actually one of my favourite elements, the friendship between Keating and that other teacher. I think, yes, isn't that so? Because I always remembered that lovely kind of like exchange when he's like, I didn't peg you as a cynic. And then he begins that quote by Tennyson and then Keating adds his own thing. But I totally forgot that they become besties. And then at the end, it's kind of nice that even though Keating is gone, his kind of legacy has continued on with this other teacher. And it's that... What we're talking about, that really lovely kind of trying to establish between being practical and being a dreamer that he's like, right, I'm going to teach whatever he teaches. Is it like trigonometry or science or I, something that isn't romantic like English, but he's having the students come out. Is it Mac- McAllister does Latin? Like Latin. That, he? Yes. He yeah. Te- yeah, he teaches it in the in the atrium in the public park. Yeah. He's like, let's go for a walk and we'll study Latin. And I just I thought that was 
I don't know. I know it's only tiny, but I really loved that. And I can't believe I didn't know it before, but I was really touched by that, I think. And again, again, that level of kind of nuance in the film that it kind of loses in like the cliche version that exists in popular memory, where like initially it seems like that teacher is going to be hostile to him. And yeah. you're like, you're setting yourself. And again, I know the principle is like a cardboard cutout villain. Yeah. But it does initially seem like it's going to be like the establishment versus Keating. And then they just have a conversation at lunch. And this guy is so charmed by Robin Williams that he's like, yeah, fine. You, you teach how let's you want to teach. Let's be friends. Yeah, let's, let's hang out. I'm, yeah. I'm automatically cooler now. Um, exactly. Like, people are allowed change. People are like, people are not born a villain or a hero. You can kind of be skeptical and then be like, wait, Robin Williams, you were, as you said, so charming. I'm going to, you know, but I'm also, I'm not going to become this, like, dreamer and like ripping up sheets i'm gonna do things my way but have a, add a little flavor and i think that's a, that's actually probably the most nuanced part of the film and now, now kids i want you to rip out the introduction to your latin te- no wait sorry it's actually important Don't oh yeah it. no no but we'll, we'll go for a walk and then we'll play some football and then you can do your homework how's that sound <laughs> uh, and again like i like that so much of the movie is like consistently characterized even for small characters where like cameron is richard cameron played by dylan cussman is such like a drip throughout consistently where like he's drawing like when keating starts like mapping the graph on the board obviously mocking the idea of like the quality scale yeah Ca- uh, it's cameron is like no no i'm making notes because this is going to be on the test so he actually <laughs> starts drawing and illustrating it like when they come out of the first lecture the carpe diem he's like is that going to be on the final yeah and i think like isn't there the like when they rip out when they rip out the papers he's the one who has the ruler to, to like do it, like properly yeah yeah <laughs> like properly so it doesn't leave a say a seam or a tear and i do like that apparently it was cusman's idea at the end of the movie that he would not stand on the desk that's right yeah, yeah. That like all the, the actor, yeah, yeah, which is quite quite clever. And Weir was like, "That's a really good character beat." Yeah, because I like I know you're meant to think like, "Oh, Cameron, he saw them down the river," but that is interesting because sometimes there are kids out there who like, you know, for to 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 stand on that table and to follow Keating's teachings and to really you know follow your heart and what you want to do. That takes a lot of like self guidance that a lot of people don't have at that age. Like sometimes you want to play the safer bet. Part of me is, and I think it's important to represent that. And part of this is where Darren is like Mr. Killjoy again, where I'm like, Cameron. yeah, part of me is like, part of me is like, Cameron is making his own choice. That's the thing that he's doing there. He's choosing when, when everybody else is standing up on the desk and he's choosing not to, he is at least making his own choice. I'm a quizzling. Yeah, I'm committed to who I am. <laughs> no, he definitely, no, that is interesting. Now, he does sell them, like, he rats them out. I don't think that's yeah. redeemable. But you're right. <laughs> he, he makes his own choice. He chooses not to stand on the table. I mean, he is a fink. Let the record show that Cameron is, in fact, a fink. <laughs> Rat fink <laughs> Thank you, Michael Keaton. Um, but, and, and again, this is the 1950s-ness of it. I like that it, it literally has like a loyalty oath and it literally has, again, the McCarthyism. That it, it's a very, it's a movie that's tied very specifically to America in the 1950s where like it ends with a witch hunt. It ends with this kind of McCarthy-esque thing where it's like, come in and identify the fellow members. Are you or have you ever been a member of the Dead Poets Society, basically is what they ask. And you have to sign this little piece of paper that basically binds and humiliates you saying, you know, well, I was misled. It was actually Keating or whatever. I will point the finger where you want me to point the finger in order for me to continue doing what I want to do. I like that it it is, you know, arguably kind of a metaphor for like that that 50s stuff that happened that America was arguably still working through in the 80s. Arguably is still working through today. Like, you know, the stuff with uh, Zoe Kazan. 
Can I? Where she's still getting asked questions about her, her, is it her grandfather, Elia? Sorry, sorry, Andrew. Sorry, I just wanted to point out that um, Chet, um, Colin Irving is the CEO of Real Rider, which is a stationary bike. <laughs> and his Google photo is him on a stationary bike. I love that Andrew's like, I'm going to investigate this. <laughs> He's uh, Chet Danbury. <laughs> Um, no way! Yeah, all of the Google image photos of him are, are on the bike. That's good brand management. Like, yeah, that's really yeah. good brand management for the bike company. Like, Got to get that that dead poet society. Wash it off <laughs> of the internet. I don't want anybody to think Chet Danbury when they see me. But yeah, it's 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 funny because you see all these kind of like actors, some with photos from the movie, and then there's. Um. Yeah, Colin Irving, Chet Danbury. It's like, isn't that your girl? Why I gotta? Look, I just want to read this quote from like Robert Sean Leonard. I talked about how happy he is doing theater. Um, like because it's he gives really great interviews where he's just like seems like a man who is very happy with his life choices at this mm. point. Um, like at one point he's asked about like that, that again, that house thing where it's like, you just show up for two days a week and you don't go to the Emmys. And he's like, you can't mistake my apathy for working on television for a lack of love of you, Laurie. And it's like, fair point. That's a very good point. Um, but here it is when he's asked, like, is he jealous of like Ethan Hawke's Hollywood success? He's like, no, I'm so proud of him. I've always felt a little bit like an older brother. I don't envy anyone anything. I'm 46 and I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old and a dog who can't see because he's so old and I adore my wife and I love Stephen King books and going for walks and Honey Nut Cheerios. I don't have an aching need to do much of anything except be with my family. I don't know if it says much artistically, but I'm happy. So, no, I want Ethan to win every award imaginable. I'm like, oh, that's... And I love, isn't he like still besties with Hugh Laurie? And I don't think Hugh Laurie yeah. has as optimistic view on life. So I would, I would love to be flying a wall at their lunches or their dinners. Like, what do they talk about? I want to know. Well, I, mean, I you- wish I could, they have like a boycott of Nestle. So I can't have Honey <laughs> Nut Cheerios. But Cheerios were a joy for a long time for me. Yeah. They were. Again, this is the kind of stuff where it's like he's being interviewed several years ago and you're like, man, I just hope that like, I know these things are bad and Robert Leonard and Robert Sean Leonard should probably like know about like Brian Singer and Kevin Spacey and stuff. But part of me is also like, can we just wrap him in like the cotton wool and just not tell him? Just tell him not yeah. to go near the internet. It's like you Absolutely. had these, you had these experiences that made you happy. There is no cultural reckoning. Just enjoy your Honey Nut Cheerios. It's like these feel like they're store brand. Enjoy your Honey Nut Cheerios. <laughs> I don't read trades. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, like, again, just, just on Ethan Hawke as well, where, like, Hawke's kind of, again, you know that he lost the role in Stand By Me to River Phoenix, which is interesting. Yes. He was kind of like... Um, I did not know that. I feel like I've heard him... I, was it on the Inside the Actor studio where he was talking about, like... The death of River Phoenix being like, yeah, good for him. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, like, with, like yeah. in his like again, Hawk is a great interview subject because he talks very candidly and very yeah. openly and often yeah. without tact, which is like something I honestly admire as somebody. But who I, has I, much I, tact. I don't think there was like the like invective or anything no. in him saying that. I think no. he was kind of. It was a bit of dark humor, like yeah, and it, yeah. But it was also like he's talked about this. It's like if if. Phoenix didn't went die. I would have been. That's it. That there before. Phoenix went for. And Phoenix what? got everything because he was River Phoenix. Yeah. 
but also there before the grace of like he's talked about had like there before the grace of god go i which is like phoenix uh is the reason why i don't live in la phoenix is the reason why i don't do big movies or i don't do as many big movies phoenix is the reason why i never want to be a star like it's basically like i looked at this kid who got everything and what mm. happened to him and he overdosing on sunset boulevard and it's like that for me was a wake-up call my best friend that happening to him and i feel like it gave me maybe a better perspective on life as a teenager which is not something that a teenager should have to have. No. Um, yeah. But it, it is something that he talks about, which I, I quite like. I do also like that how he found out he didn't get the part in Stand By Me was Rob Rayner, the director, telling him, you're really good, but I just gave the part to another kid with a bird name. <laughs> um, all right. And then do we want to talk a little bit about the reception and the legacy of this movie? Because I feel like, Emma, you mentioned Friends. Yeah, yeah. So when that Friends episode was definitely like in the earlier seasons, this Friends episode would have been like maybe eight years after the film came out, I want to say. Yeah. And then, so, oh yeah. So what's what's the, sorry, Is do you want right? the context of the episode? Yeah, well, just like, again, like the, the kind of maybe the reception, because it speaks to, I think, how Dead Poet Society was seen in pop culture for a little while and perhaps still to an extent. Yeah, so Monica meets a woman who was stealing her identity. And this woman who we know as Monica because she's stealing her identity is like very much living by what Keating is teaching. Like seize the day, carpe diem, do all this crazy stuff. Don't think twice about it. Do that tap class. If you want to do that tap class, even if you're bad, la la la. And Monica, like Courtney Cox, Monica is like, how did you become like this? And she's like, have you ever seen the film Deadpool Society? And Monica is like, yeah. And you're expecting her to be like, that film... And she's like, was so boring. And she was like, when I left that theater, that was two hours. I never, I'll never get back. And that scared the shit out of me. And, <laughs> and it's interesting. But she also like, what I, what I never got was she kind of describes the ending. She's like, that kid kills himself just because he doesn't get the part. It's like, wait two years, do some community theater. And it's like, okay, she obviously like fell asleep because that's not the ending of the film at all. <laughs> I do like that she has an argument that is not too dissimilar from my argument. It's like, go to college, then become an actor. Yeah, it's like, chill, yeah. chill. Like, you'll be fine. You have the rest of your life to kill yourself. Yeah. Like, sorry. Um, <laughs> I mean, okay, like, to give a, a sense of their critical response, here's Ebert's review, just the opening paragraph, which is like, I like a recurring segment of where we read the opening paragraph of Roger Ebert's review. Two stars. Dead Poets Society is a collection of pious platitudes masquerading as a courageous stand in favor of something. Doing your own thing, I think. It's about an inspirational, unconventional English teacher and his students at, quote, the best prep school in America, unquote, and how he challenges them to question conventional views by such techniques as standing on their desks. It is, of course, inevitable that the brilliant teacher will eventually be fired from the school, and when his students stood on their desks to protest his dismissal, I was so moved I wanted to throw up. You have like Ben Brantley in the New York Times describing Pious it as platitudes. It's hard to kind of argue against that. Although, if you agree with the kind of pious platitudes, then it, it you're like you're kind of, on. Yeah, you're, you're <laughs> like yeah, it is a little bit, but but I like this. Yeah, yeah, and like you have Ben Ben Brantley in the New York Times describing it as one of the most conventional works ever written about the importance of defying conventions. <laughs> um, and I do like there's a piece just very quickly from like Karen James tears into this in the New York Times and we'll include links in the show notes. She's still going on about it in December 1990 to give you a sense of how much Karen James disliked this movie. But like in 1989, 
she writes, and again, she, this is in the context of that like 80s and 50s conversation that Emma mentioned, where she's like, Though Dead Poets Society and Say Anything try to praise teenage nonconformists, these conventional films work against their own rebellious messages. And as they react against the Wall Street aspirations of button-down yuppies, they seem a beat behind the times, now that 60s nostalgia seems to have overtaken investment banking in high school dreams. Dead Poets Society, in fact, is out of touch with any particular time at all. Set in an American prep school in 1959, it contains anachronisms such as the slangy young grammatical I Could Care Less. Its period is marked primarily by shots of a few old cars. The film seems aimed at 80s conservatism, for as the English teacher with the too poetic name John Keating, Robin Williams must convince his class that poetry is as important as preparing for med school. The film's intriguing assumption is that 17-year-old boys must be urged to rebel. Which is interesting. Um, yeah but yeah I, yeah and again like the, the the critique of it where it's like and again it's the thing that it's, as andrew said it's easy to be cynical about where it's like ah you rebel by standing on your desk just like everybody else is standing on their desk <laughs> um and like you have that bit where it's like oh you're, you're conforming by walking like everybody else so why don't you all walk individually like everybody else and like that's the moment where i kind of fall in love with nuanda because it's like no the key there is not to walk at all. Um, but it, it is kind of interesting that it does, it's it's very conforming non-conformatism, if that's fair. Yes. Yeah, it's like structured rebel rebellion. Yeah. All right, then. And then, yeah, I think that's then about it. The only other thing to note is the anachronism of the Fields of Athen Rye being played on the bagpipes when that song was written in 1979, I believe. I was thinking, is that Fields of Athen Rye? Yeah. Really? That song was written in 1979. Yeah. Or maybe 77. We're going to go to the fact that he was written during the 70s anyway. Um, Really? Yep. There was some allegations that it had been based on an old Irish folk tune, but there's no historical evidence of it. It's about the famine. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes, Andrew, we are thinking of the same Fields of Athen Rye. Trevelyan. Yes. Yeah. Okay. so it's because a, we all know that Irish people stopped worrying about like the famine and like rebellion just as soon as independence arrived. We're like, yep, that's good. <laughs> we, yeah, it's that it's that new ad for Ireland's Edge Stout, where <laughs> 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 they're no longer bitter about the famine. <laughs> um, is there anything you want to say, Emma, that we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out in terms of your notes that you want to talk about with regards to Dead Poet Society? Do you know what really actually struck me? I know we were talking about it's a beautifully directed film, but I want to know, did either of you notice that during this standing up scene at the end, around 50,000 lads got up and then at the end you realise that there's only like seven guys standing? Yeah. Do you notice that, that so many lads are like, <laughs> and got up to stand up and then you're like, wait, there's only like five of me there. And like, oh. I, I really like that the entire cast doesn't stand up. Like, I like that, like, the people who weren't in the, who weren't cool enough to be invited to the Dead Poets Society, like, I don't understand what's happening right now. Yeah, there were people who were never in that cave who yeah. do stand up. Because they're yeah, like, I was never in that cave, but I wanted to be. Yeah. And I I feel like I, it's, it, it's my time to kind of, like, rebel. <laughs> I'm, I'm not I, conforming by not. I'm very to the uncomfortable in this class where I'm uh, where I'm asked to follow a chapter that is <laughs> that is missing from my textbook. Um, all right then. Oh, and and again, another detail that I really like here: uh, headline from the New York Times in 1991. 
Uh, Robin Williams was inspired by Patricia, sorry, by uh, John Campbell, who was a 55-year-old teacher who had taught at Detroit County High County Day School in Beverly Hills for 28 years. He was fired in July 1991 from his job for reasons. He's been on probation for several years and has been aware of the school's concerns and has not satisfactorily demonstrated a willingness to adhere to all the academic and professional standards of the school. So this is John Campbell who inspired Robin Williams' performance uh, in the role. Then there's the uh, Mr. Pickering, Samuel Pickering, who inspired Shulman, the the writer. And Mm. he said basically when he was asked about the role and asked about the performance, asked about the movie, he said, Robin Williams was more restrained and a great deal more sensible than I was 25 years ago. Still, I recognize bits of myself and I like the movie. Um, If I thought I had really influenced the lives of students, I might stop teaching. I am not a big enough person for such responsibility, which I quite like as well. And he also says that he really has no interest in poetry whatsoever. <laughs> Can... Do you know, I was just thinking, I, I'm trying to imagine if this person hates or loves Dead Poets Society. But I wonder what Enoch Burke thinks of Dead Poets Society. Oh. <laughs> I, I was just it's thinking, his favorite movie. Yeah. Is it his favorite film or does he hate it? Like... I need, I need to know. Not that I ever, ever want to meet that man. But luckily enough, Emma, we have a surprise <laughs> guest coming at us from live outside. Uh, no, no, we do not. Um, imagine, I'm like, I'm, imagine he's just like waiting outside my house. Like, you know, Burke has been denied entry. Into- <laughs> he has been denied entry to the podcast. Um, unfortunately, yeah. he's coming back. <laughs> He's like, yeah. He is in the waiting room of this chat right now. Um, (laughs) But yeah, yeah, it does feel like he either really loves it or really hates it. It's not like he gives it a three star review. Yeah, it's an extreme reaction. I just don't know which which one it is. Like, uh, I'm certain Enoch Burke thinks he's a hero, right? He thinks he's Keating. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Emma, like, again, this is an audio medium, so I feel like listeners cannot see Emma's reaction to that. I, that I'm like, is he or like, but no, is he? No, he's no, like, he's not. But he, no, no, he's not. But I mean, that he thinks he is. Yeah. Yeah, or is yeah. he proudly the principal? Does is he like he's the principal either way? But does he think he's Keating or does he know he's the principal and he runs with it? That's what I want to know. I think is he's he definitely not the is he? principal. The principal doesn't want him in the school anymore. <laughs> yeah, period. <laughs> like, imagine if Keating had just kept coming back. Oh, I left more of my stuff in the room here. How unfortunate is that? It's like imagine he just got a shot of like Charlie's parents driving him away, and Robert Williams just at the gate, like waiting until like what a, a school bus comes in, he can run through the gates. I, I yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh god so that's a delightful note on which to end this conversation yeah. uh, but what about so inappropriate smoking yeah there's a lot of children smoking yeah. in this movie not very much food waste uh pit pitts brings um half a roll yeah. like um it, it, that he could have thrown out but he's not done with it yet yeah. so i commend him on that um and one thing that i thought was weird in the movie was the way uh, Ethan Hawke writes sees the day and the last the way he writes the why. why it's so weird it's yeah. like a, a he does a backslash and then a forward slash <laughs> that joins it and then like a straight line down 
that was really I'm so glad you said that it was really unsettling like who yeah. writes their why in three different lines like you just exactly yeah to, to, also how old are they meant to be uh they're like uh 17 or 18 right Okay. It's slightly younger because they're coming in, but I don't. Again, I don't know with Americans where. That I is a good question, actually, because there seem to be very young children in the first scene. Yes, and, with, the, with the family portraits. Yeah, yeah. but it's. Um, it's a high school, basically. Yeah, it's a preparatory school. But it's right? not their first year. It's Ethan Hawke's first year, but he they they make think of like, oh, you transferred. I think they oh, are okay. meant to be like seventeen or eighteen, and like that was nineteen fifty nine. When I, I was smoking at 16. Like, I found, I didn't feel the smoking out of place at all. I'm like, 1959, they are probably smoking when they were babies. Like, if they weren't smoking, I would have thought that was weird. I mean, you got to support the American economy, right? Yeah. That's right. Exactly. That's and you look Virginia cool. tobacco. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it, 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 it is the way to kind of, like, solve whatever kind of problems you're having as a teenager. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, it's like, I don't fit in. Nobody likes me. <laughs> and then you start smoking. But nothing <laughs> is... Like, nothing... Everybody thinks they're cool all of a sudden. <laughs> also, there's nothing more childish and nothing more boyish or girlish than smoking a cigarette with the wrong, like, hand. Like, do you know when you were younger and you'd, like when you had to hold a cigarette that is just such a great way of placing someone as like they're still a child like they're actually and like the lads are like looking around making sure everyone knows that they're smoking I think it's a good way of being like god these kids don't know anything like they are just little <laughs> children at the end of the day god bless them alright then um... <laughs> ending on uh, the Enoch Burke and underage smoking yeah right. yeah the, I feel like the 250 neither endorses Enoch Burke nor underage smoking <laughs> um, neither of those things in that order of priority those are the things that this podcast does not endorse um, Darren is talking in the third person as the voice of the podcast alright yes. then um, what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something something they're enjoying at the moment it could be something related to the movie something unrelated to the movie just something that brings you joy that you might want to share with the listeners so to give Emma a chance to think about it I'm going to ask Andrew to go first um, a Robin Williams movie I'll recommend I, th- I think Good Will Hunting is great um, you think but it's I- great Will Hunting <laughs> But I'll 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 recommend a Fisher King. It's it's yes. it's a it's kind of like a a singular uh, Terry Gilliam movie. It 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 has kind of his inventive um, uh, style to it. It's also very humane. It's got a very good Jeff Bridges kind of um, uh, performance. performance. A great arc um, for that character. And it's a great um, sequel to Monty Python: The Holy Grail. It is. It is. It's. 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 And it's very kind of sympathetic to to um uh, uh Robin Williams's character. In terms of Ethan Hawke, obviously I've spoken about Gattaca loads. Yeah. So I won't. So I won't. Sorry. I won't talk too much about that. But it is fantastic. Like it's. 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 It's just a f- terrific movie. But and and another movie that I haven't spoken about and that is very good and doesn't get spoken about. A lot. Or at least my, my, my recollection of it was that it was very good and it didn't really seem to get much of a reception with Daybreakers. That's one with Sam Neill and the Vampires. Yes. yes. Yeah. No, I thought it was terrific. It, it kind of had what I thought was kind of like the makings of a very kind of memorable kind of a go-to um, midnight movie. movie. Kind of. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like Hulk... What I like about Hawk is that for all that he gives great interviews and for all that he has his moments of pretension and for all that he speaks candidly without any filter about the art that he makes or whatever, 
he also just makes pure schlock and he treats it with a great deal of respect. Yeah. Like, yeah. He yeah. works with Richard Linklater. Like, Richard Linklater is one of his guys, like, one of the founding fathers of the American indie cinema movement. But you know who else is one of his guys? Scott Derrickson, the dude who makes, like, Sinister and, uh, what was Black Fuqua. Folk Sinister. What? And, uh, and, uh, Antoine Fuqua? Yes, is also one of, you're right. He's, he's done a couple of them with Training yeah. Day as well, hasn't he? Um, but yeah, like, I love that he, he has no, like, he doesn't look down his nose at anything that he does, which is something I really admire for an actor who takes himself very seriously. No. Like, he, he respects the craft, but he also doesn't look down his nose at the work that he does, which is kind of incredible. Yeah, he's he's not as highbrow as you might kind of like expect him to as be. As the stereotype yeah. I, of him would be. Yeah. yeah. Um, when he talks about, was it like, when he talks about like those winters at Sundance where we had to like eat some of the independent filmmakers for food and nourishment. Um, <laughs> gathered around the fires of burning 35 millimeter reels to keep us warm. But uh, Emma, what about yourself? Anything you'd recommend? I'm glad Andrew covered like the Dead Post Society adjacent recommendations. So I'm just going to pick one I'm enjoying at the minute, but I've been watching Happy Valley. I know if you've been watching it. Oh, I keep hearing about uh, Happy Valley. It's supposed to be terrific. So it came, it's really, so the first season was 2014. The second season was 2016. And now they've, they purposely waited seven years because there was a character who's a child in the first two seasons. They wanted him to wait till he's a teenager. And I remember, so like me and my family, there isn't a British detective show we haven't seen. Like we are obsessed. And actually, if you watch this, you will see that. And I love this. Mayor of Easttown, totally robbed some elements from this like it's a very similar story but basically it's a bbc detective show and like as much as i love cinema and depot society and you know these lovely ideals and av- no, i was gonna say avatar but you know big spectacles or like tar <laughs> yeah. there is something like i saw tar last night which i really enjoyed but there's something about tar is great oh great but some, there's something about like real down-to-earth stories where it's just like it, there's no special effects it's in this kind it's in Halifax which isn't like not to be mean the prettiest town in England but it's a really good story and it's really good acting James Norton is kind of the main villain he's fantastic even though he's like one of the most good handsome men on planet earth he plays this horrible character and Sarah Lancashire is the main detective and if you like Mayor of Town, this is just fantastic it's definitely what some like British television's best so I'd highly recommend that it's 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 currently on season three which is the last so I've gone back and watched one and two and it's just fantastic and as this is coming out a very timely question for you Emma how do you feel about Luther as as a British television detective show fan I you know what I tried and it was too (laughs) like I I like really grounded detective stories like uh, Bodyguard Line of Duty no I'm I'm a whodunit girl (laughs) I'm sorry. No, I have been sorry. I'm not trying to say I've seen everything, but I'm a who done a girl like Nicola Walker and Unforgotten Broadchurch. Um, Collateral with Carrie Mulligan is a four parter. That's brilliant. But with Luther, I tried. But Ruth Wilson coming in as this like fucking Christian Bale Thor villain. Like you can never catch me. I was like, what? And Luther like coming through ceilings. Like I know Idris Elba is amazing, but I was like, I. This is like a Brit- This is a BBC show produced by Marvel. I do not <laughs> sign up for this. No, I do not need like th- like no. So Luther, and but, but what I like about Luther is that it really goes into horror territory. There are some really really scary. Have you seen all of Luther? I have. Yes, I don't. I don't think Andrew has. I've seen. I think the first season or possibly the first two. Yeah, I had an ex girlfriend once who was into it. 
it's do you know that bit i'll never forget it there's some woman and she gets into bed la 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 all's fine and this man just comes out from under her bed and it's just like really intense music and i was like oh my god like i i every time we sit, sit and watch a detective show i don't expect to be scared but luther does get scary so i do like that aspect but it's just a bit too it's it's flying too close to the sun for me to enjoy all right, Loser Fallen Son is in cinemas this weekend. This is coming out. Sorry, that was, was like, a segue. I was, I was like, it's timely. I was like, huh? Is there a new season? No, I have not seen it. I just, while you were talking about British television shows, I thought it was a time to make a timely reference. Um, that was true. I didn't even know that. That is so funny. Um, Anyways. All right, then. In terms of recommendations for myself, <laughs> I recommended earlier, I'm uh, going to double down at The Patient, uh, which is another story about a bearded, com- or, you know, kind of a comedian who's playing a role that's relatively straight, where he's trying to reach a bunch of, you know, a kid who's got some serious developmental issues, who maybe, like, needs to be coached through life and life's major steps. Uh, it's from the writers of the Americans. It's it's really great. I had a really, really good time with it. Um, you- it's Donald Gleeson, isn't it? Donald Gleeson and Steve Carell. Oh, love Donald Gleeson so much. I was thinking... It's interesting that like the the actors who went from kind of comedy to drama don't tend to kind of come back very Anymore. much yeah. because they, they it's like they become very kind of like self serious or it's like no mm. I'm I'm proving but Robin Williams who proved himself early as an actor like never felt that kind of compunction to 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 have to go back sorry to to that that he couldn't do a silly movie, or yeah. that, or that, that he couldn't do robots and say in you know the, like Insomnia or the Bicentennial Man and like One Hour Photo. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah or he did like he did Depot Society, then did Mrs. Doubtfire or V Runaway Vacation. Yeah. Or, or oh my God! So... <laughs> <laughs> of all, no, we're ignoring that one. <laughs> oh, that one doesn't count. That one's not counting. I'm um... trying. What is like a la- I'm trying to think of his later work. Oh my god! Oh. I think is it Night at the Museum Two, where he's Theodore Roosevelt. The last. Fi- I don't know if that's his oh. last film. So it's a the Wild world- Hogs. The world's was, angriest was man. a very silly yeah. and I think also bad. Yes. Movie. Okay, I'm yeah. glad it wasn't yeah. Lee Daniels the Butler. Imagine your last film is Lee Daniels the Butler. Okay. Uh, credit where credit is due. Um, you were kind of correct in that. I think looking here the. One of his last uh, on-screen roles was in the third Night of the Museum film, not the second. That's Secret of the Tomb. Um, his last credited role was the voice of Dennis the Dog in Absolutely Anything, which was the unofficial Monty Python reunion movie that nobody saw. What? Um, and also, I think I mentioned there a moment ago, he did star in The Angriest Man in Brooklyn with uh, Mila Kunis as well. And he did a sitcom, The Crazy Ones, with Sarah Michelle Gellar, which I believe was created by by David E. Kelly. But if we are kind of recommending, uh, if we are recommending um, Robin Williams' uh, projects, I would recommend Bobcat Goldthwait's uh, World's Greatest Dad. Uh, I have not seen this in years. I suspect it may be a thorny one, uh, given the subject matter. But it's a hilarious black comedy that I think manages to reconcile many of the facets of Williams that are, are fascinating as a performer. Um, it is the story of Williams as a school teacher whose son is like the literal worst human being ever. Uh, but basically his son dies by autoerotic asphyxiation. 
and Williams decides to stage it as a suicide uh, while leaving a suicide note that he wrote himself. He's a failed writer who's never amounted to anything in his career, and his son's fake suicide note ends up becoming this huge source of inspiration uh, to everybody around him with the irony that he can never take credit for what is perhaps his kind of defining work. Um, it, it, it's a really fascinating movie. I have never heard of it. It sounds like Dear Evan Hansen for adults. <laughs> <laughs> it's Dear Evan Hansen, but directed by Bobcat Goldwaite. Like, <laughs> if you can imagine that, if you can square those two extremes, that's, that's kind of where you'll end up. So yeah, that, that's it in terms of recommendations for myself. All right. So, and I love that one of those recommendations was like, I think this is great, but it's probably deeply uncomfortable for reasons we're not going to go into. Um, but <laughs> Emma, what are you at? Where are you up to? Where can we find you? Um, well, I'm an editor writer at Collider.com. So you can check out my stuff there. And I'm on Twitter at Emma underscore Kylie. Um, not that active on Twitter, but yeah, no, Collider is where you'll find me. All right, we are available at the 250. You can find us on Stitcher or SoundCloud, wherever good podcasts are found. Add us at at the 250. Um, we are, as we mentioned, we're going bi or fortnightly. I shouldn't say bi-weekly. That sets an expectation <laughs> people aren't going to meet. Uh, we go fortnightly for the first, maybe third quarter of the year this year, just to get up to speed, just to let us catch up on editing and stuff like that. Uh, we are absolutely not doing anything completely insane that the internet has, some people have begun to guess that we might be doing. We're not doing anything like that. Um, we can promise. So we'll, we'll be back in two weeks. Um, I don't know what we're covering because whatever we're not doing, we're, we maybe need to start working on what not doing it soon. So myself and Andrew, because it'll be a quick one, we'll be talking about Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, I guess. Um, <laughs> in two weeks. Cheers. Take care. Thank you so much, Emma. Thanks so much, Emma. Bye. Thanks, guys.